Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Eric. Ward, another fun one. It is, especially because we're powered by Working on your diaphragm. Also, while you're doing that, I realized how many listeners we probably lose immediately <laughs> that never even give the interviews a chance because they just were like, "What is this?" And they're out. <laughs> they're listening to Bill Simmons by now. <laughs> Do you know how there's that like skip ahead fifteen seconds? Yeah, but yeah. I like that they could hit that and I'll still be in the middle of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to hit it like three times. Or what's it sound like if they're like you and they listen to it at like 1.5 oh, or double speed? It would sound like this. Bigs! <laughs> yeah. Nah, probably not. I don't know. Uh, this is going to be a fun one, and I don't think we should really uh, BS around. I think we should just get right to it. What do you think? Okay. I mean, when you have a national champion waiting, you just get to it, right? I think so. Who's your hysterics? Who's your hysterics? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to today's show. On this show, we talk to people, not just any people, Indiana legends. We've got one on the line. Eric, tell us about him. Well, well, well. Today, we get to talk to a gentleman from our neck of the woods out here on the West Coast, hailing from San Clemente High School. We are talking to a gentleman who was the 1986-87 Big Ten Newcomer of the Year. We are talking to someone who in his senior year was first team all Big Ten. We are talking to a gentleman who was first in the conference in rebounds and blocks his senior year. We are talking to someone who led 
the Indiana Hoosiers his senior year in scoring and rebounding. He has the 16th best rebounding season of all time at Indiana. And now I just want to go through some block shots numbers here. Freakish. This gentleman blocked eight shots in a game, which happens to be the second best all-time game at Indiana in block shots twice. He blocked seven shots twice. He blocked six shots twice. And he blocked five shots seven times. He has the most blocked shots in a season. He actually owns the first and second best seasons on block shots. And he only had two seasons. Yes, which made him sixth career all-time. He is sixth career all-time with only playing two seasons at Indiana. He is second all-time at Indiana in block shots in Big Ten games. He's 12th all-time in field goal percentage, 53.8%. He is the Indiana MVP uh, in his senior year, 1988. And more importantly than anything, besides his incredible run starting at the age of 30 in the NBA, he is a national champion Indiana Hoosier from 1987 Please welcome what I think we will learn was the emotional leader of those teams, Dean Garrett. Welcome, Dean. Wow, wow. I didn't even know uh, any of those stats you guys are just rattling off right there. So uh, I was sitting here like, wow, I didn't even know I had that. Well, <laughs> you got him, man. We, you are all over the record books. Well, you know, it's always good. I guess when you get done playing, it's always good to reminisce and go back a little bit. So that's that's really good to hear, I guess. Well, we are going to do a lot of that reminiscing. But before we do that, Dean, tell everybody what you're doing now. Where are you in the country? And uh, what's what's filling your days these days? Um, I live in Las Vegas. Um, I'm married. I have uh, two stepkids, and I have a daughter of my own. And, uh, man, just living life. How's Vegas? Do you love Vegas? Uh, I love Las Vegas, man. Uh, it's it's close to California enough for me. Uh, California a little too expensive, and uh, the traffic is horrendous. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Las Vegas is close enough, and um, man, I love Las Vegas. And are you in Las Vegas proper, or you just say Vegas and you're really living in like Henderson or something? No, I live in Las Vegas. We live in Summerlin, actually. So we're in Las Vegas. I'm always curious, people that live in Vegas, do you actually, like, do you go to dinner on the Strip, or do you just stay away from the Strip and leave that to the crazy lunatic tourists? We stay away from the Strip. <laughs> we stay away from the Strip as much as possible. I actually work on the Strip. I'm a casino host at New York, New York. So uh, as soon as I get done with work, I'm out of there. We we don't really want to hang out down there too much. Do you ever catch a show? Cause there's some good shows in town. Um, you know, I, my wife and I went to, I think, the last show. We saw Michael Jackson's show on her birthday. Uh, we did we did go to a concert at the Mirage uh, last month. So that was, you know, on the strip. So, I mean, occasionally when you just have to be on the strip, but if we don't have to be there, we, we're not trying to get down there. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Now, you do have a couple fellow Hoosiers running around Nevada these days. I hear you uh, get to catch up with uh, Pat Knight and Steve Alford from time to time out there. I do. Uh, Pat lives not, not too far from me, so we have uh, had dinner before. Myself, uh, my wife, Pat and his wife, and also Tim Knight and his family. Um, Winston Morgan lives out here. I've seen Winston um, just when I was back uh, two weeks ago, I found out that Tony Brown, a uh, member of the 81 team, he lives out here. We haven't gotten together yet, so we will soon. 
And uh, I get to see Steve all the time because when Steve was coaching in uh, the Pac-12, the Pac their Pac-12 tournament is right there at T-Mobile Arena, which is connected right to New York, New York. So I see him, and now that he's in Nevada, he's back in the Mountain West. So the Mountain West tournament is here at uh, UNLV. So even when they played UNLV two weeks ago, I went and saw him, and then I'll see him again in like two weeks, I think, a week and a half. For the Mountain West tournament. You know, Dean, before I, we want to talk about what happened at Indiana uh, a few weeks back, but before I, I, we get into that, I just have to ask this. The thing that people, I think, remember the most about you, besides the block shots and the rebounding and the scoring and helping us win a national title, is the emotion that you played with. I mean, you played, and we'll get into that some more, but you played with such a competitive fire, and, and it's what endeared you to so many Indiana fans and why you are still a fan favorite. But my question to you is now that you're kind of removed from playing your playing days, those are behind you, that competitive spirit, does that just go away or do you have to find something in your life these days to kind of replace that? I try to find something to replace uh, the competitive spirit. Um, I think any athlete, no matter what sport you're playing, you, you, you're always going to look for that competitive, that competitive fire, whatever that can replace whatever you were doing before. And, you know, right now, the closest that I found to do that is playing poker. Um, honestly. Yes. It's, it's the, the closest thing that I found. My wife doesn't understand that too much, but uh, she looks at me every time I walk out the door to go play. But it's the closest thing that I have found to any kind of competitive, just to be able to trick somebody, to fool them, uh, to know that you have it. It's just that it's the only thing that I can think of that I could do right now that would give me that. And when you get that river card that just makes your hand, do you do that right-handed fist pump that you used to do on the court? Do you just accidentally knock somebody out right next to you at the poker table? Yeah. You know, I think I have a pretty good poker face because I sit there with my headphones on and I don't try to hold a conversation with anybody. And I, I think I have a pretty good po poker face. But then again, I've never like had like got dealt four quads on, you know, on the on the flop or anything like that, which I know would be a lot of money. Right. I've never got dealt that. So I don't know what my reaction would be when that happens. Well, speaking of reactions, let's do go back to that magical time in Bloomington a few weeks ago. Um, can you tell us how you heard that Coach Knight was coming back and, you know, what was your reaction to that and deciding to come back yourself to be a part of it? Um, I actually got a phone call from uh, Randy Whitman. And uh, Whitman and I had been together for a while, actually. Uh, he was my assistant coach when I was with Minnesota Timberwolves. Nice. So when I saw... When it was calling me, I didn't answer the phone. I was, I think I was riding a bike actually, and I went and got my phone. So when I saw it was him, the first thing I thought was he's trying to get me together to go back to Minnesota to do something. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I thought was, eh, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't want to go back. To he called me about a couple of hours hours later, and when he told me that uh, we were going back for coach, I was like, oh man, hands down. I, I was at work and. When he was talking to me, I was walking toward my boss's office to go let her know, um, I need this time off. I'm not missing this. Um, I'm going to this no matter what. Mm. So when you got to Bloomington, uh, Ward and I were there. We were there to just be part of the, uh, the weekend and to see the game and, and obviously to see all of you guys and be there for that moment. But the night before the game, 
there was a real buzz in Bloomington because everybody was talking, oh, my God, Keith and, and Dean were at Knicks. We got to get over there. We got to get over there. Like, what was it like for you being back in Bloomington, even before we get to Assembly Hall on the Saturday? What was it like just Friday night being surrounded by former teammates and, and all the fans? Well, uh, on my Friday night, my wife and I flew in in the afternoon. We got to rent a car. <clears throat> excuse me. And then we drove down to Bloomington. And, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of just reminiscing going down 37. For my wife, uh, she was just amazed at how flat it was. She's never been to the Midwest. <laughs> so she was amazed at how flat it was. And she was excited to see the, the snow flurries that were in the air. Yeah, It really wasn't exactly snow, but it's just the flurries. And she's never been in that kind of weather. So she was uh, more or less excited uh, just going out taking a drive down. And so the first place I took her to was Assembly Hall, and I knew we had to go do it then because I knew the next day we weren't supposed to be walking around. Right. So mm -hmm. I took her to Assembly Hall just to take a look at everything, and uh, she walked in, and she, you know, never seen anything really that big, you know, you know, looking around like that. And so the guys were practicing. You know, I didn't want to bother them. I just kind of just walked and looked around. And, you know, reminisce, you know, of being back in this building. And uh, Boozer Flint came over and spoke to me, and we spoke for a minute. And then I was like, you know, let's get out so these guys can enjoy it. But that was the first time that I uh, seen the statues inside. That was the first time I seen the plaque that was outside at 8017. People have sent me pictures of it, but I haven't seen it in person and so that was great. And then, then we left there, and then we drove over to where my dorm was. What was and your I was dorm? Telling her, like, yeah, what dorm? Uh, Aston Johnston. Oh, okay. was at Aston. Yeah. Wow. And then uh, went and checked in, and we went over to, to Nick. What would you do? You played scene for the biz? You, you, you <laughs> eat some pizza? Well, you know, when I was in school, I could never get in. <laughs> so I was, you know, not 21. Right. And, you know, everybody was scared to even think about letting us sneak in because they didn't want to hear coach either. <laughs> so I was, I couldn't get in. So I was actually able to walk in there this time and uh, to move around. That was great for me. And the main bar that we always used to want to get in was hooligans. And it's not there no more, but I'm sure my wife, hey, this is where hooligans used to be. You know, I used to always want to get in this place, but I couldn't. <laughs> So it was just fun just to walk up and down on Kirkwood and uh, reminisce about not being able to get in all these places. <laughs> uh, what what was it like having f being surrounded by Bloomington fans of kind of all ages? Because I, I'm sure you got approached by fans that remembered you when you were there and were probably students with you when you were there. And also, you know, younger fans who just have heard of the uh, the lore of that team the last time we won the title. It was more or less the younger ones. Uh, I didn't really see anybody. I heard stories. You know, they made you feel old saying, you know, my mom and my dad went to school with you. <laughs> it's like, all right, thanks for that. But it was more or less the younger kids. And we were just sitting in there. And I, you know, I, I think I went up, went to the restroom and came back. And then some kids were like, hey, Dean. And I turned around and, you know, they put their glasses up in the air. So I went over there and just spoke to them and just said hello and, you know, they they look at it completely different than we do. You know, they're like, oh, thanks for being a legend. Thanks for going to school here. Thanks for what you did. And I'm like, I don't look at it in that same way. 
And it's just kind of funny to, uh, to hear when people are saying that. But, you know, your banner is up there, and they're all looking at Keith and I, like, and Steve Isle, who was there. They're all looking at us like, man, you guys, you guys, you know, we looked up to you guys. We, you know, and we didn't look at it that way. Well, I didn't look at it that way. I couldn't speak for everybody else. I, I know I never looked at it because I'm, I'm not from Indiana, so I don't get a chance to go back as much. So how did it feel for you, like like being able to see the impact that you have had for, I mean, really for 33 years? For generations. Kids who weren't even born are still in awe of what you accomplished. It, it's it's a weird, weird feeling. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, really, uh, it's very humbling. You know, I, I can remember playing there, and the, the main thing was Steve didn't want to be that last group of seniors that never won a Big Ten title. Right. And, you know, we, we, we all – that's all we really thought about was not letting Steve go out this way. Wasn't really trying to win a national championship. It was just don't let Steve go out without winning the Big Ten title. And, you know, and nobody in Coach Knight's uh, tender pretty much, everybody won a Big Ten title. And then going, going back to talking to these kids, and they're like, man, we've been here, and we've never had a team that went to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. yeah. That and is I'm like, rough. oh, wow, this is completely different. Not won a Big Ten title. You guys are talking about winning a tournament game. Yeah. Or just going to the tournament. And we let you see that things have changed since you've left. But you know what? To be a – you know, when, you saw, when I saw Coach and he was able to come out that's when you kind of look back and you're like, man, you know, his history, we, we helped. You know, this group of guys that we had in 87, we helped that history because that's his last national championship. And getting to a third, that is such rarefied air that it is something that I think, you know, really cemented him on the Mount Rushmore of all-time great college basketball coaches. And you'll always be tied to him with that what was sadly the final title for IU for now. Yeah, for now, for now. For now. <laughs> um, but let's right. let's get into that glorious Saturday. Um, you get over there to Cook Hall for the reception with Coach and all the other players and just kind of take us through some of the highlights of the guys you saw and caught up with and, of course, when you finally got to, to see Coach. Well, you know, I was uh, super excited. I was really, I never even used that word. I was really, really excited to get over there. Um, I was already pressing my wife to get dressed, to be on time. We got to go. And we only had to be there at 1130, but I was, I was ready. I was just ready to get over there and just kind of, kind of uh, take in the atmosphere. Sure. And uh, I, I think we were the first ones there. I didn't know what time he was going to get there. We really <laughs> had no idea. So I didn't really know what to to think was he going to show up early was he just going to get there right at the last moment i had no idea but when i got there we were the first ones, and then uh scott may walked in and and you know now now you're going back to, to my time you know i'm looking at scott and just like you know he's he's a legend to me yeah you know they they played on you know the the team that went undefeated and i think that's absolutely fantastic and so just being able to speak to him and him know who I he knew who I was, and so I was like, okay, yes, this is this is great, this is great. And then being able to meet some other guys from the '70s team, coach's first team, I think I was more in awe of all of those guys. And then I, you know, obviously Isaiah when he walked in, and 
like I said, I already knew Randy and Mike Woodson. I already knew all those guys just from playing in the NBA. I saw them guys on a regular basis. But I was more in awe of the guys who came before me and being able to hold a conversation, and they actually knew who I was. One guy, before we get into the reaction when you actually saw Coach, one guy that Ward and I were both just kind of blown away that was there, pleasantly blown away, was Jay Edwards, a, a guy who whose end of his Indiana career was premature and, and then dealt with a lot of just personal stuff since then, but seems to have gotten his life back on track. It was so good to see him there, and he was your teammate your your second year. Did you get a chance to, to see and talk to Jay? I did talk to Jay, and I, I did see – well, obviously, I saw him, and we did sit up there and talk. And, you know, what's so funny is uh, my, we walked out a little bit to see some of the beginning of the game, mm-hmm. and we, you know, because they didn't want us to be noticed, and they were like, don't go out there. We don't want nobody to know you're here. And I was like, I was at Knicks last night. I think everybody knows I'm here. <laughs> so we yeah. walked out. Dean Garrett can't walk around <laughs> incognito. Yeah, they didn't want us to do that for some reason. So I took a peek, and we look up in the stands, and Jay's sitting in the stands. <laughs> and we're like, Jay, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to be down here. And he was like, I didn't know where to go. So I was like, oh, my goodness, here, here we go. So we had to grab him and bring him back there with us. But, no, it was great to see. Just like his freshman year with uh, the senior telling him what to do. Exactly like a freshman year. Exactly. Nothing changed. So walk us through the moments where Coach Knight walked into that room and and what that felt like for you and then any interaction you had with him that you're comfortable sharing with us. Um, You know, well, I was sitting there and I was talking to my wife. And I think she was was very, very much in awe because she obviously has never met him. She's never seen him. I mean, that's what she definitely wanted to do. And so we were sitting there talking and I saw Bob Hamill. He was walking in and there and he was walking in a group of people and coach was in the middle. And so I could tell by that, that walk, you know, a little slower, but I knew who it was. (laughs) And so he walked in and then he walked out. And I, and what I'm guessing is I heard that he wouldn't address the team. So I'm guessing that's what he went and did. Yeah. And then he, you know, when he walked out the first time, I was like, oh, wow. It's like, and I went and saw something to, say, something to Steve Island. I said, you see Coach? And he was like, no, no, because everybody was talking. Everybody was interacting and talking with each other. So nobody even saw him come in, basically, I think my, my wife and I. And so he came back in, and he went and sat down. So we had a bunch of TVs inside watching the Purdue game and everything. And so my wife ran to the bathroom. And Quinn Buckner's looking at me, and he's like, all right, come over here and say hi to Coach. And I'm like, okay, where's my wife? Because <laughs> if I go over there right now by myself, then I'm going to have to hear this, that I didn't wait. So I'm like, where are you at? And so now I'm texting her, and I'm blowing her up. Like, will you come on? Come on. Come on. I'm supposed to go right now. And she said she couldn't get down the elevator. So everything was going on. So then we finally went and got her. And Keith was over there. He was speaking to Coach. And so then I went over there and spoke. And um, I was talking to Bob Hamill at first. And uh, I could see out of the corner of my eye that Coach was looking my way. And I could see his eyes got big. So everybody kind of scared me on the fact that if he doesn't know who you are, then don't pretty much worry about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. But I could see out of the corner of his eyes, his eyes got bigger when he saw me. 
So I kind of guess I say, okay, he definitely knows who I am. So I'm not worried about that. So when I went over there and uh, the first thing, you know, he patted me on my leg and I asked him how he was doing. He said he was doing good. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, um, you know what, son, I really loved your mom. That's the first thing he said. And he said the reason why was because when I had to get in your ass, she was one of the parents who never said anything to me. She knew that I was in your ass for a good reason. Wow. That's exactly what he said. And we just sat there. We didn't talk about basketball. We just talked about how everything was going. He asked me how I was doing, where I was at, what, what, what was I doing. And I introduced him to my wife. And uh, we took a picture. And him and I took a picture. And then us three took a picture. And we just chimed in. And my wife went, you know, went on her rant about, you know, he's just like you. And he does this <laughs> like you. And he does these things like you. And that's, you know, that was, we, I spent about 10, 15 minutes with him. And then, you know, other guys were starting to come in. So I just got up and was like, you know, let everybody else kind of get over here and get their time. And were you guys just like giddy as a group to be around each other again? And then for coach to be there and for you all to be back in assembly hall, was it just smiles ear to ear the whole time? It definitely was smiles ear to ear. Uh, I, I remember a conversation that Scott, Scott May and I were having because we were comparing our program to the North Carolina program. And his son obviously went to North Carolina, and he's still a major part of that program. And we were just saying, you know, we, we need to start doing these things. We need to be just as strong as these guys are. Yes. And he is like, well, well, you know, this is day one because, you know, it was hard to do when our coach never came back. Right. But now that coach is back, it should be a lot easier for the, you know, these group of guys to all start getting back together. Cause I know you came back for the 87 championship reunion and even for you then, or I know Scott may in particular, it was just so hard to be back there without feeling like in some way it would be upsetting to coach and that you were sort of torn between your love for the school and coach. And now that that's gone, it's something that you guys whether you live in Vegas or you live in Bloomington can just show up anytime without any of the baggage or the drama and just enjoy yourselves again and let future players or current players see what it would be for them if they made that commitment in their life. Um, you're absolutely right, man. I mean, any, any program, I don't care what sport you're playing or what school you went to any pro no program is, is, is not as good unless you have the alumni coming back. And for those guys who are on the floor now, I mean, I know they didn't come in. We didn't really get to interact. We didn't get to meet any of those guys. But they got to know what they're playing for. And, I mean, besides yourself and your family, you got about 50 other guys in, in your practice facility that you're playing for. And I'm not sure that every generation understands that or – believes that but it really that's really what it is you're playing for the guys that came before you and uh that's the most important thing to having a successful program and having a successful alumni you, you guys you gotta understand that they're playing for you know that's one reason why india doesn't have the the last names on the back because you're playing for the name on in the front that and those guys gotta understand that it's a long line of guys 
who've come here and, you know, sweat just as much as you guys are and then bled and everything else that left on that floor and you guys had to pick it up and keep it going. Music to the ears of every Indiana fan who has just been dying for that to happen because clearly it hasn't for 20 years. And uh, we just love hearing you say that. I I do want to ask you to be a little selfish here for a second. I I know it's not the same anymore. You're not a 20 year old kid at Indiana. You're, you're an adult. You've got kids, you've got a life, you've got a job. You're, you're in your fifties, but how cool is it for you to go back to Indiana and be able to introduce your wife who didn't know you back then and be able to say, this is coach Bobby Knight and have, and just watch her interact with him. Doesn't that just fill you up with pride? It's got to make you feel good. It does. It, it really does. Uh, I was excited that she was able to come with me on this trip because, you know, we were trying to figure out. I know we went back and forth. And, yeah, I'm going. No, I'm not going to go. And I was excited that she was able to go just to come and see another part. She has been to my high school in, uh, in California, and I have my, my jersey retired at my high school. So she's been there, and she's been to my junior college in San Francisco. And she, But this is the last place she's never been to. And probably the most important one. Yes. And so when we, you know, we walked out and we saw the the plaque, and she she saw it before I did, and she, you know, saw my face on the plaque uh, just to see her light up. I know she was excited for that, and to be able to walk through and just see the history of everything that's going on in Indiana basketball and what it stands for, and to know that I'm a part of part of the history. I I could see it in her eyes how excited she was and uh, how happy she was to be there. And, we, you know, we have a son who's 11, and obviously he didn't make the trip, but we were just saying, you know, one day, you know, because this is not a basketball house. We don't sit there and talk about basketball in this house. It, I would say it's more of a baseball house than anything else. And so for him to be able to come back and take a look and just kind of see what I have done would be pretty cool also. Well, I hope that happens very soon because well, that would be an amazing thing for an 11-year-old kid. It's it's so hard to get your kids to think you're cool, but you got a real ace card to play there. <laughs> you know, maybe when he's getting into his teenage years and you need to need to prove to him that his dad had some game. Exactly. What was it like to walk back out into assembly hall packed full of fans cheering for you and all your teammates and the other players? What emotions run through you as all that is going on? It, it is the biggest surreal feeling ever, man. Just to walk back, just to be a part of it, just to be a part of being invited back. I mean, being a part of the history of Indiana basketball, it's such a surreal feeling. And even when we were all together back there at Cook Hall and we were watching the game, just sitting there, I was just looking around. It's like, man, this is crazy. This is a great, great day. This is an epic event. And this isn't for everybody, you know. Even when I got home and you turn on the TV and, you know, you, you got – everybody has their opinion and everybody is saying what they had to say and, you know, why is this on TV? Why do we care? And I'm, I was sitting there thinking, this wasn't for you. Right. This is for us. Right. This is for the state of Indiana. You guys don't have to put this on. Really, this was for the state of Indiana. This is for us. This was our celebration. And – it's always going to be just for us. Everybody can have their opinions about coach, uh, people who did play for him, people who didn't play for him. But the 50 guys and the guys who could not make it and the guys that aren't still here with us to this day, like my brother Daryl Thomas, 
I mean, we love Coach, and we're always going to stand right behind him. So for us, it was a great, great day. We asked Keith about this, so I wanted to ask you about it as well. You, you will be forever linked to Keith because you guys came together, yeah. both from junior colleges, uh, you know, which was not a common thing for, for Coach Knight or Indiana, for that matter. I believe you guys were the first junior college players for Coach Knight. There was one Indiana. before them, but oh, he didn't one? work out. Okay. Uh, but you'll be ever, before, yeah. you will forever be linked to to each other, you and Keith. And obviously, without you, we do not win a national championship. Can you just talk a little bit about the friendship that you have with Keith and how special it was to be back there for that day with Keith there also? Uh, you hit it right on the head. Uh, Keith and I will always be connected together. You you can't think of one without thinking of the other. Um, Keith and, Keith and I, our relationship, uh, we understand what, what we did. We understood, you know, that we came in. You understand it a lot better now when you're an adult. Mm-hmm. I don't think we understood it, you know, 30-some years ago. We didn't really understand that. But our relationship has always just been as close as brothers. Uh, my family is connected to his um, and vice versa. My wife, his wife and my wife, you know, they, they've met before, but now they sit there and they talk to each other on the phone and everything like that. So it's just great to always be connected to him, not through the basketball part, but basically just really through the friendship part. We've been friends for 30 plus years and it's never going anywhere. But when, you know, when you're in Bloomington and you're walking around, you feel that connection a little bit more because everybody understands it. But when, when we see each other in Las Vegas and things like that, well, I don't think we think about it as much. Well, and on a weekend like that in Bloomington where Eric and I, before we started doing the podcast, you might go back and you could see the buildings you used to go into for a class or visit the restaurant. But now that, you know, in this season where we've got to go back three times and no weekend more than that weekend, it's what basketball provides the alumni, even just as fans, is a community to come back to, to go into Assembly Hall, to go into Knicks and walk out of there with new friends you didn't have when you walked in. It's so much fun to go back now. And I can only imagine as a returning national champion with some of your buddies and adoring fans from all these generations, you just you had to feel like you you were back home. You know, it, it was, like I said, it was a very, very surreal, weird feeling to be back down there. Um, everybody looked so much younger. And yeah. I felt like the old man <laughs> in the place. No kidding, man. But uh, it, it was just such a, it's always nice just to get back. And, you know, if I see somebody now walking around with an Indiana shirt on, you know, I'm they, they definitely get my attention. Mm-hmm. But to even be back and every single person has on Indiana something, Indiana something, no matter what. It's, it's actually really, really cool to see. Cause I do remember sitting there and like everybody has something on, you know, and the guy at the bar was talking about it's Purdue week and, you know, this is how we do it. And I was just like, yeah, man, I, I keep forgetting these kind of things. This is, this is great. I don't get the, a chance to, to be around this as much as I would like to. It's actually really, really, really fun just to go back and experience being in college one quick time. But the only difference is I could actually afford to buy a beer. <laughs> yeah. And not have to worry about somebody reporting you to coach. 
That's that's really important. Exactly. Uh, so one of the things that we love to do is just you know everybody's life journey uh, that played for Indiana. Everything that happened before getting to Indiana led them to get to Indiana, no matter how windy that road may be. So we'd love to go back to the beginning for you out in California. How did you find the game of basketball originally? Where where did you and basketball first meet up? Um, I, I never played basketball at all. Um, I, when I got to high school, uh, I thought I was going to go out for baseball, and that's what I was going to. That was really my plan to do. And then the um, the varsity coach saw me walking around, and I I guess I had to probably be about six, maybe six one, six two, maybe. And uh, he asked me, what did I plan on doing? And I told him I was playing baseball. And my dad loves to tell the story, but I don't exactly remember it going that way, but my dad always says, as soon as I told him I was playing baseball, he's like, okay, I'll see you in the gym at 2 o'clock because uh, <laughs> you're going to be in here playing basketball. And so I, I went over there. I had no idea what I was doing my freshman year or, or pretty much my sophomore year, but I kind of like stuck to it. And, you know, my parents would send me the, the basketball camps. I remember going to Larry Farmer's basketball camp because I was in California. Uh, little different things like that. I would just go to the camps and kept playing and kept playing. Uh, my senior year, um, I was pretty good. I don't know if the league was – I don't think the league was all that great. And I thought I was going to go to um, Saddleback College, which was a junior college. Um, the only per- the only people who tried to give me an offer was uh, University of Arizona. I do remember Lou Olson coming to visit me, but I didn't think I was ready for anything like that. I was probably like 6'10 by this time and probably weighed about 180 pounds. <laughs> so I was really, really skinny yeah. and did not think this was good for me. So I, I thought I, I thought I needed to go to junior college. And uh, my mom my mom moved to San Francisco. And so basically I was forced to kind of go to San Francisco. I didn't want to, mm. but I was kind of forced to go. And uh, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I went to a city college of San Francisco what, yep, and yep. I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't know that they had a really, really great tradition and really, really great basketball program. And I met a guy named Brad Dugan, who was my coach there. And a lot of people would say that, Coach that Brad Dugan was uh, vocally, verbally, uh, energetically, he was way more harder than Coach Knight was. And so all those things. So when I got to Indiana, none of those things kind of bothered me because I already dealt with that with Brad for two years. And, And Brad made me do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Real, real quick, Dean, going back further, because I think there's other stuff in your life that prepared you for the general coach night. Yeah, you were at Camp Pendleton growing up, and, and your eventual head coach yeah, yeah, was my, from West Point. Did that prepare you at all for the journey you were about to go on? My dad my dad really wasn't like that, though. I, don't, I can't really remember, remember too many times my dad even used the cuss word. Now, I've heard stories about my dad because he was a drill instructor. He was a drill instructor in the, in the Marine Corps. He was the warden of the brig at, in the Marine Corps, and that's at the jail. And I've heard other guys tell me things about my dad, especially after he passed. But I, don't, I didn't grow up listening. He didn't come at me in that 
that kind of way. I, I never heard that. So it, you know, growing up on the military base was one thing, but it was kind of like life is normal to us. Was it? A, I don't remember it being anything different. Was it a? Did your dad or or your house was it a disciplined house? Do you, did you have chores growing up? Were you, were you a guy who liked structure and was that laid out for you? I mean, yeah, we had our chores. You know, I had a, I had two sisters, so you know, we had to wash dishes, and I think we all had a week that we all had to do it. Then we had to keep my room clean. But I, I don't know if that would be considered uh, the discipline part, or that just you know Normal. teaching you how to be a. A human being, yeah. but but Coach Dugan. So, yeah, I don't know. But Coach Dugan at San Francisco, that was the real stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's the first one who really started, like you know, make making me do things that I pretty much didn't want to do. I didn't really want to show up on a Saturday and have to go work out with him for two hours. He would always tell me, "Any day you miss, that's that's minus that's five hundred dollars less than you're gonna that you're gonna not gonna make." Mm. And so he would drill that into my head all the time. You know, and I was 17, 18 by the time I got there. And I, you know, I wanted to go to the movies. I wanted to have a girlfriend. I wanted to do all these things. And he was like, nah, none of that's important. And that's pretty much how he drilled it into me. None of that's important. I don't care about that. You shouldn't care about that. You should be caring about this ball all day long. And it took me a while to finally get into that. But that's how he did it. We, we had a good team. We had a really, really, really good team. Uh, we we went to the state my uh, sophomore year, went to the state finals, and I hurt my foot. And I think I had 18 in the first half against uh, Sacramento City. And uh, I hurt my foot, and he wouldn't let me come back. I wanted to, but he wouldn't let me come back out there because he knew, you know, I was going on to Indiana. And it was probably the, one of the worst feelings I ever had because we ended up losing the game. And uh, I still think about that to this day, how bad I really, really wanted to win that game for Brad. That's just how we all felt about it. We wanted to win that game for Brad, and we didn't. Now, was it under Coach Duggan? Am I saying that right, Duggan or Dugan? Dugan. Dugan. Was it while you were spending time with him and under his tutelage that you realized basketball for you could go far beyond playing at City College in San Francisco? Had you even considered playing at a big-time program or going professional before you got there? No, not at all. No. I, Like I said, I thought I was just going to go to Saddleback Junior College in Orange County. I thought that's just what I was going to do. I had no other plan besides after that part. But when I got to San Francisco City College, uh, Brad started putting that in my head that, you know, you're, you're going to play beyond this. You're going to do something beyond, you know, just playing here at City College. You're, you're, you got big dreams. And I guess he saw something that I didn't, but he definitely uh, put that in my head. And so, you, obviously, I started believing that. Were you a fan of basketball? Like, did you watch NBA games? Were there players that, that you really looked up to? Or was it literally just something kind of that you fell into because as you grew, there aren't too many six foot ten basket uh, baseball players out there. So, is it just something that you kind of organically went to, or were you a fan of the sport? Um, I organically just went to it. I was a baseball fan. I still am to this day. I don't watch much NBA even now. Uh, back then, I mean, 
I think everybody was a Jordan fan. I right. do remember him coming to play the Golden State Warriors, and that was our closest team. So I do remember, you know, rushing over there to the Oakland Coliseum to go see him play. But I was basically always and still am a big, big baseball fan, and basketball just happened to be what I started to do and started to get better at. Who was your baseball team? Um, I am a diehard Dodger fan mm. to this day. Mm. It will never change. I am a diehard Dodger fan. So I'm very much into it, uh, big time watching, you know, MLB Network pretty much all the time and uh, just catching up on all the Houston Astros stuff. And, yeah. So you know, how- trying to get my frustrations out because yeah. <laughs> I was very frustrated after we lost. Do you feel like now as a fan, I'm a St. Louis Cardinal born and raised uh, fan. So, and, and the Cardinals and Dodgers have had, mm-hmm. have had uh, a hell of a rivalry over the last many years. Lots of, a lot of post game matchups and or postseason matchups, but are you a fan who thinks yeah. that the world series from a couple years back should be given to the Dodgers because of the Houston cheating scandal? Or do you think they should just be stripped and that's it? I think they should just be stripped. You can't give it to the Dodgers. That feeling's all over. Right. You know, I telling my kids, you know, if we win this, I'm jumping in the pool. As soon as this game's <laughs> over with, I'm jumping in the pool. So, you know, they were they were super excited because they wanted to see me jump in the pool in October. And I was like, I'm doing it. I'm about to do this. But uh, I never got that chance. So, yeah, that feeling's gone. I just want – I wish they would just take the title from them because I don't want to see the Astros in 20 years, 25 years, having no reunion. Right. And, you know – talking about this, but now that I keep hearing all these guys talk, I don't think that's ever going to happen because everybody is feeling the same way that I felt about it. But, you know, I guess when it first happened, I knew my feelings. So I'm like watching TV every day, ready to hear everybody else's feelings. And nobody was really saying anything until last week. So now I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm happy to hear all these other guys are just as upset about it as I am. And in an optimistic view going forward for your Dodgers, is Mookie going to get you guys over the top? Was he the missing piece? Wow. Uh, you, you know what? I Obviously, I definitely hope so. But, I mean, baseball season is such a grind. And I'm just talking about it as a fan because I'm literally, you know, watching. I keep up the 100, all 162 games. I know what happened pretty much in every single game. I'm watching. <laughs> Can't see it on TV, but I got it on my phone. I'm paying attention to every single one. And it's just such a grind, man, and it drains it drains you. And, you know, I've been drained the last three years of keeping up with it, and you get to the World Series, and then you, you go out, and then, you know, you had the Howie Kendrick's Grand Slam, and it just drained me again. So, you know, for Dodgers, it's World Series a bust. Mm-hmm. So it's so hard to uh, to get prepared for that. And I didn't think I would be ready for April or March to come, but now I'm pretty much energetic. I'm excited about it. I'm going to opening day uh, next month. Nice. And I'm looking forward to uh, baseball just starting up again. But, I mean, there's only only one winner. And I can tell you right now, if we're not that winner, you guys not, might not be speaking to me, but you can definitely <laughs> get a good, good grip of how I'm feeling. Because I will be drained. It's also funny, uh, you know, being a lifelong Cardinal fan and and as passionate, I think, for the Cardinals as as you are for the Dodgers. Uh, baseball's a weird sport in that it's so rare that you get that one player that puts you over the edge. 
I mean, baseball, the, the margin of difference between these teams is so slim that, you know, the Yankees add Giancarlo Stanton or, you know, like it doesn't all of a sudden make them 10 games yep. better. It, it like baseball is such a weird sport. And when it gets to that postseason, something weird always happens. It's like just something weird will happen. Some freak play, some pitcher who's the best pitcher in baseball has one bad game and it ruins the series. There's the pounding of trash cans and all of a sudden yes. the game's turned on Could its be. head. It's just, it's a weird sport. It's a, it's a, unlike a basketball where obviously you go get a superstar, it does change your fortunes. Or two Juco players. Or two Juco players. It uh, Anyway, we could do a whole other basketball or baseball podcast, but I want to get back before we, before we find out about how Indiana and Dean Garrett intersected. I am curious to go back to this idea of how much emotion you played with, which is just the thing I love about you more than anything. Absolutely. Um, it's what we want as fans to see out of our players. We want to see that they care as much as we do. We see a little uh, Dean Garrett and Trace Jackson Davis these days, and it's really exciting it's to see. It's true. Where did that come from, Dean? Uh, was that something that just part of you, or did that develop over the years as something that you needed to kind of motivate yourself? You know, I really don't know where it came from. Um I, I, I do watch tape of it, and a lot of times I'm sitting there now like, wow, that was way too much. I wish I was just a little bit more calmer. No. Because I, I really was kind of animated sometimes, and I really wish I did not do that now as a grown-up. I wish I had a little bit more more patience and you know, just be pretty much cool about it. I, I don't really know where it came from. I mean, I really, really, really loved that school, I really, really, really loved my time being there. And we we just wanted to win. And when I watch it now, I kind of know where it was. You know, I was excited. I just was happy to be there and love playing, you know, at that time. But I just really wish I didn't do it as, that much. I wish I was just a little bit more mature with my celebration. Oh, you mean like jumping into the pool mature? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I got to say, Dean, you know, when we talked to Keith, too, Keith told us you were the emotional leader of that team. They knew that no matter what, you would be ready to play the second that ball was tipped every game. You got hyped before it. You were ready, and they needed that. Yeah, he said you were playing music in the dorms before games. You were the hype guy. Yeah, yeah, we definitely had the music going before. Well, I mean, if you're going to compare the two, Keith was Keith was more of a quiet one. Keith, if you saw any kind of emotion come out of Keith, then I would be shocked. I remember LSU game, he he showed emotion, but I knew why because he was playing against his, you know, his hometown right. team, and so I knew where that emotion came from. Uh, I was just I was just that way because I was always just kind of just like pumped up, pumped up and ready to go ready to go at all times. And Keith had to draw that emotion out of him a little bit. Rick was always really, really so cool, too cool for himself. Mm. Um, my senior year, you know, Jay was really too cool. I think he was cooler than Rick. Cold-blooded. So yeah, he was just like, you know, really just had ice in his veins. He really never showed any emotion himself. I guess I really was the one that was just trying to get everybody going and and, you know, and they're showing the excitement, you know, that we're ready to go because 
it was really nobody else's personality that that's how they felt. So to jump back to Coach Dugan, uh, the man who, you know, believed in you and got you believing in yourself of what you were available um, or, or, or your potential in, in what you could do with basketball, I heard a really funny story about the first phone call he got from Joby Wright inquiring about you coming to Indiana. Have you heard that story? Um, I think I have, but go ahead and tell me and I'll let you know if that's what I've heard. Okay. What I heard was that Joby Wright calls up and says, hi, coach. This is Joby Wright, assistant coach with Indiana University, and we're interested in Dean Garrett coming to play for us. And that coach Dugan said, that's BS and hung up on him. And then Joby had to call back and say, no, 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 it's Joby from IU, and and we're really interested in Dean. And that Coach Dugan knew Coach Knight's feelings about JUCO transfers, and he goes, you know what, I'll believe it when I see you here. And that Joby got on a plane and was there two days later. Yeah, that's pretty much how I've heard it go. Okay. I mean, I... uh, one thing about Brad, he was never going to, you know, tell me any of those things. He didn't really handle my recruitment, you know, because obviously back during those times, you got letters that came to your house mm. all the time. And so he never really he never really said anything to me about Joby Wright. I do remember when Indiana was coming, and I knew then when Indiana was coming that I was going. There was no doubt in my mind where I was going at that time. Wow. I was 100% locked in that I'm going to Indiana. Uh, Brad did make me do one thing. He made me uh, take a visit to Minnesota because uh, Flip Saunders and him were friends. So I had to take that visit. Um, So I did take my visit to Minnesota and, you know, they did all they could do. But even when I was there, I pretty much knew that I was going to Indiana and, um, I signed my letter of intent before I even came to Bloomington for the first time. It was just a done deal for me. I was just that locked in. I knew I was going. But at that point, had you met Coach Knight yet? Um, I met Coach Knight later on. Uh, He did come out. Joby came out, obviously. So Joby and I had that relationship. But like I said, I already knew where I was going. And then Coach came out, and he came out. He met my mom. And uh, he came to Frisco, and we sat there in our in our living room. And uh, I, do, I do remember his words very clearly, and I can quote it. He just said, you know, I can't promise you that you're going to play. I can't promise you you're going to start. But I can promise you when you leave here, you're going to be a better man. Mm. And I was already sold. I was already done. And my mom was pretty much like, yeah, I, I think my mom wanted me to stay in California. Uh, I think she wanted me to maybe go to Cal State Fullerton, but I didn't see that in my I didn't see that in my future. I didn't see that at all. Uh, I w- I could watch Indiana play on TV from California, and I was like, "That's me. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to do this." And uh, if I didn't go to Indiana then my second choice would have been UNLV. Okay. Because on the time on the West Coast, they were the they were really the only things going on. But Tark really didn't uh, come after me that hard. He didn't really – he wasn't persistent. He really didn't keep going at it. 
he would live so, to regret uh, that. I was like, good, he's making this easy. Yeah, no kidding. Now, I did hear there was quite a ruckus on campus uh, in San Francisco when, when Coach came to visit you. Is it true that the football team had to cancel practice because all the players wanted to come over and watch you and Coach Knight in the gym? Yeah, when uh, Coach when Coach came, uh, we had like these glass, like two glass things that you had to peek in through to see what was going on in practice. And when coach came, he, you know, everybody wanted to see what coach looked like. Everybody wanted to get in there and take a look and, and gander over there and see, wow, there he is. There he is. I mean, coach was, a, you know, he's at the top of his game at that time. And, you know, he was kind of like a fictional character. I mean, when coach walked in the room, you know, at those times, there's only a few people who can do that. But, you know, when they walk in the room, everybody turns and looks. Everybody can feel that presence come in that room. And uh, Coach had that. Coach had that kind of aura. And that's how he did it. And people definitely wanted to see him, wanted to see what he was like. Obviously, everybody knew why he came there was because of me. But uh, it, was, uh, it was just a weird, great feeling for a 17-year-old to be going through him and dealing with it at that time. What was your impression of him after the first time you got to meet him? Um, very, very uh, straightforward. Very straightforward. No holds back. He didn't – I don't think he BSed me on anything that he said. Uh, I, You know, I took a visit to Minnesota, and I could kind of feel the BS. Hmm. But it really didn't bother me because I knew I wasn't going anyway. <laughs> So walk us through the first time you stepped foot in Bloomington at Indiana University's campus. What what was your first impression uh, when you got there? Uh, it was cold. <laughs> it was cold. Uh, I've never, you know, I lived in San Francisco for two years, and you know that's a that's a different type of cold. But it was cold. Um, I've never been in the snow. You know, you could see it in California from mountaintops. Um, I think it, by that time, the furthest I'd ever been away from home was uh, Colorado. And, you know, I knew I wasn't staying there. But once I got to, you know, Indiana, you know, my biggest thing is I wanted to meet those guys. I wanted to meet Daryl. I wanted to meet Rick. I wanted to meet Steve. You know, I wanted to get their phone number. I wanted to know these guys. I wanted to be around them. And uh, they all welcomed me with welcome arms. And more so Daryl than anybody else because, you know, Daryl knew that he wasn't going to play center anymore. He knew that he could go back to the position that he loved, and that was being a power forward. And uh, so Daryl was probably a little bit more excited than everybody else. But with the experience he had had at playing the center position before you got there, was he fairly instrumental in, in helping you get up to speed and how to prepare for life in the Big Ten? 100%. Daryl Daryl knew all those guys from, you know, already playing against everybody for three years. He knew all of the guys that, that would be going against. So Daryl was there to help me with all, of, with all of those things. But when you played Indiana and you played for Coach Knight, you, we automatically knew everybody. We knew everybody's tendencies. I knew everything about everybody. We had little notebooks. And we had to keep notes. And in there, we had a picture of that person and everything that person liked to do and didn't like to do. So we were on top of that. We knew about every single player. 
Mm. Wow. What uh, we always love to know what it was like the first time you went to practice uh, with Coach Knight. We we have heard that from many people that that is a life changing kind of uh, event when you when you get in there. I think Keith described it as controlled chaos in in practice. What was it like for you your first practices? Um, you, you just try to catch up to speed with everybody else because obviously Keith and I being there for the first time, we didn't know the different things that you had to do, you know, when practice starts. Obviously we knew you better be on time and be ready to go before coach even comes out. So that was a no brainer. We knew that. And then, you know, as soon as, as soon as we come out, we did this one passing drill. We always did every day where we called everybody's name when you pass the ball. Uh, now it makes 100%. It's, it makes sense to me now. I don't think it made that much sense then, <laughs> but it was something that all the time. And, you know, we did the same things every single time before coach even spoke. We, we already had these drills. We were ready. We were already sweating. We were ready to go. And then depending on the mood, depending on whoever we were about to play that week, I understand it now, but we were being tested every single time, you know, for something that helps me out in everyday life now. I mean, we would get thrown out of practice and, you know, get sent to the locker room. You know, in my junior year, that really wasn't my problem to deal with. That was Steve's problem to deal with. That was Daryl's problem. That was Todd's problem. You know, they had to deal with that. We were just, you know, following their lead. And then my senior year, it was my problem and Keith's problem and Steve Al's problem. And then that's when you're like, oh, man, I got to deal with this now? <laughs> well, you know, where's Steve at? Where's Daryl at? I need these guys back here to deal with this. But you understand it now as an adult. But back then, it's like, man, what, what is he doing? What, you know, what's the message that he's trying to send? But practices, like I said, all depends on the situation, who you're about to play, what was going on. In junior year, we only lost four games. So we, I think we only got thrown out of practice once, <laughs> you know, in that time. And I was just probably trying to teach us something, you know, that you guys really aren't that good. But my, our, my senior year, we probably got thrown out of practice twice. Mm. And so you got to learn how to deal with that. Well, now everybody's all American and sort of the quintessential Indiana player grew up there, was a legend and, you know, a purest shooter as we've ever seen, Steve Alford. What did he teach you or provide in the form of leadership of what it meant to play for not only Indiana University, but for Coach Knight and for the state of Indiana? Did he help you learn really what that meant as a California kid showing up from a few thousand miles away? You know what, Steve? Steve was a there is a Steve's an awesome leader, first of all. Uh, for somebody who's been leading since he came there as a freshman, he really had it down to a science, you know, as a senior. And with Steve, man, you learn that you're playing for that name on the front, but you're playing for that whole state. And that's exactly what it means. And, you know, a lot of times when I first got there, I'm just playing for us, you know, these guys right here in the locker room. Mm. You know, it took a while to understand that you were playing for that whole state. And, you know, Steve understood that. But it took a while for me. I couldn't speak for Keith, but I know for me, it took me a while to understand that I was playing for this whole state. This is a, 
it's a completely different monster than just playing for the 12 guys that I'm looking at every single day. But no, Steve is a great leader, man, and he definitely took a lot of the a lot of the flack if things weren't going well. And you know, Steve could have 30 in a game, and you know, if we lost and we weren't playing very well, myself or Keith, Steve was the one that had to hear it. He'd be the one being called back, you know, to the front of the bus or to the front of the plane. Had to hear coach speak or the coach's uh, office had to hear coach go off on him, and then he had to come back there and give it to me. And so I know those are things, you know, when you're 20 years old, you don't want to do that. But, you know, those things that Steve had to do. And when you're playing for the whole state like that, is it a double-edged sword where there's a, a, a greater amount of pressure? But would it also be true that that gives you some level of resolve that maybe you wouldn't otherwise have if it was more about you or, or just you and a, a few of your teammates? No, you know what, man, playing for when you when you realize what you're playing for and what the impact has on every single person, it it's another responsibility, but I wouldn't say it's a I don't wouldn't say it's a lot easier or it's a lot harder. It's just another responsibility and it's a lot easier now that it's over with and we won the whole thing mm-hmm. to sit back here now and about it. <laughs> You know, but at that time, you know, I, I think it was the Duke game for me when I realized that, man, there's a lot of people that care about this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just guys, these 12 guys here are, and our parents. It's a whole lot of people. It's this whole state, this whole southern part of the state that wants us to win. And then you got the northern part of the state that pretty much probably didn't want us to win. No, as a Northern Indiana guy, there are plenty of Purdueys around, but trust me, it was still an IU majority in the, in the Northern part of the state. And when I say Northern, I'm thinking about Lafayette. I knew those guys right. didn't want to see us do nothing. That's true. <laughs> you, that mean, is true. you mean the armpit of Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would never say that. That's, yeah, you're that's my nice. job. That's, that's my right. job here. Uh, so, Walk us through what was going through your mind, if you remember, right before your first game against Montana State. Do you uh, what what was what was going through your head? Were there butterflies? Were you excited? Uh, nerves? Just walk us through what was happening there. I mean, I, I had butterflies before every single game, <laughs> no matter what. I mean, because you're just hoping that you just play well, you know, and that you automatically have butterflies no matter what. Um, I don't, I mean, I do remember having a lot of block shots against Montana state. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm not cocky, but I never looked at Montana state as competition. I never looked at them as a competition as a fact of man, you know, I just played my first, you know, real college game and this is what it's like. I didn't, I didn't put them on that page. I, I was so, at that time, I think I was so looking forward to Louisville. I was so ready to play against Purvis Ellison because mm. being in junior college, I just saw him win. That's the person that I was like, I can't wait to see him to see what I do. That's basically all I was waiting on. Well, before you could get to that game, which we should, we'll, we'll talk about that game too, but you got into uh, the war against Kentucky real early in your career. Now, you guys are ranked number three. You're, you're a title favorite basically from, from the beginning of the season. But Kentucky comes to town, 
And did you have any idea what that rivalry meant before you played in it? No, not as much. I I think I was more excited to play against Notre Dame than I might have been to play against Kentucky. Hmm. Um, You know, obviously at that time we've heard of Rex Chapman and all those things. No, I don't even think Rex was there yet. I just, Kentucky really wasn't a big rival to me in my mind as Notre Dame would have been. I would have took Notre Dame at that time way over Kentucky as a big rival. Wow. Uh, real quick, though, Dean, do you remember – I know you said you got a lot of blocks in that first game that you ever played, and the reason I want to focus on it is because I, I think there's no better commercial for junior college players than what you and Keith did at Indiana University because while I understand that it might have taken you a while to kind of get up to speed on everything, you and Keith both hit the ground running and sprinting at Indiana. Do you remember what how many points and rebounds you had in that Montana State game? Ooh, I, I don't remember how many points or rebounds. I think I might have had like eight blocks, though. You had 10 points, 14 rebounds, eight blocks. In your first game, you almost get a triple-double in your first game at Indiana University. I mean, a pretty stellar start. You know, I don't, I don't think triple-doubles were really, really known about at that time because I don't think I, it ever even phased me. I don't think if you just said triple-double, I don't think it really would have phased <laughs> me. Um, now, if you think about it, I wish that I would have tried to get those two extra blocks. <laughs> well, but it, but it never really phased me on that. Well, like Ward said, you did. You went through. You win that game. You you do play Notre Dame. You win that game, and now you play Kentucky, number thirteen in the country, and you turn in a double-double, which became quite common for you at Indiana. You turn in 13 points and 12 rebounds, a win over Kentucky, and the season is like kind of officially now started. Now what's interesting is you follow that game up with your first loss at Indiana. We lose at Vanderbilt, which is never an easy place to play. Do you remember uh, anything about the tenor of Coach Knight and the feeling of the team after that loss? Um, I do. Uh, because we had to travel on the plane and that was our first loss, you know, and, and I just remember it cause it was in CM Newton. So I knew that was somebody that we well, was one of the coach's friends and I knew it was somebody that he definitely wanted to beat. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of Will Purdue at that time. Mm. Uh, and that was probably my biggest test obviously at that time. Cause my mind obviously was straight on Louisville. Yeah. That's all I remember thinking about that's all the people when I left the you know left San Francisco, everybody saying you're gonna play against Purvis Ellison, you're gonna to have to go against him. And so I was mentally ready for him before I even got to Indiana. So let's get into that because they're the defending champs and you're going up against the guy yeah. who's gonna be a star in the NBA and is already a huge star in college basketball. How did you, uh, your teammates, Coach Knight, get prepared um, for you to go head-to-head with him? And ultimately, you get another double-double, and you essentially shut him down. So whatever you did worked. You know what? I, I, I believe it might have been an ESPN game. So I think that might have been the first time I saw Dick Vitale. Oh, wow. I was just emotionally pumped up to go against him and purpose and I are friends now, but at that time I just had a big 
I just wanted to, I just wanted to get them. I just wanted to, I wanted everybody in San Francisco to see that, you know, I got them because they kept getting in my head. Oh, I don't know if you can play with this guy. I don't know if you can do that. So I was coming there just to try to destroy as much as possible for purpose, you know, and, and on my level destroying, you know, I wasn't, you know, didn't score a lot of points or anything like that. I wanted to block a shot. I wanted to give him rebounds. I wanted to try to get a dunk over him. That was my level of destroying. Yeah, he just had a miserable shooting percentage. And and maybe this ties into the Kentucky game already, too. But you're playing this game in Assembly Hall. What is it like when you've got that place rocking, you know, against rivals coming up from Kentucky and, and Louisville? Was that something you'd ever experienced even as a fan before, being in an arena that gets that loud and crazy? No, not at all. I mean, Assembly Hall, especially at that, at that time, it was definitely rocking and rolling in there. And, I, I mean, yeah, I knew that we were ranked pretty high, but everybody else saw something before we even saw it. I know Keith and I couldn't come there and say, yeah, I thought we were going to, you know, win the whole thing. I just knew that we were ranked pretty high, and we had a really good preseason schedule on our hands. and. It was just like one after another. You were playing against somebody that it was easy to get up for. You know, you didn't ever have to worry about getting that low. Like, oh, I don't feel like playing these guys. No, every every night you knew it was somebody that was going to come in there, and you had to play pretty much your A game if possible. So Assembly Hall was always rocking and rolling. There were no seats available. I mean, all the way up to the top. That thing was always full. So that was always, always a great experience to play in front of. Yeah, I can't imagine at the the height of Coach Knight's power and on a team that was going to go uh, on a title run, what what the decibels must have reached in some of those games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though they lost in the first round before Keith and I got there, but apparently everybody else saw something that uh, we, we actually didn't. Because, I mean, honestly, I guess I would have thought Hey, we're just going to get to the NCAA tournament and let's see what we can do. I never had thoughts of going to the Final Four or anything like that until all that started. Well, now the Big Ten season is coming up upon us. And as you talked about, and Keith talked to us a lot about this, this season was so much about we can't let these seniors go without winning a Big Ten title that that was the key. And now you're starting the Big Ten season, which takes every season at Indiana up another level and you start in a really strange way. I I don't remember too many seasons starting. You start with three road games. You start at Ohio state at Michigan state and at Michigan. What was it like going on the road uh, to start your kind of big 10 life at at Indiana and playing those three schools? Well, uh, honestly, at that time, I didn't know the impact of having three straight road games. I had no thought about that. It was just, I guess, for me, another regular schedule. Right. Uh, when you look at it now, you'd be sitting there like, wow, you, you're really putting this to the test to start us off. And, you know, if you look at it now, you'd be like, okay, maybe we can get two of those games. That'd be a great start. But to go out there and get all three of them, I mean, you look, any, you could do that now and go get three of them. What a great feeling that is. 
Oh, my God. We, so, we, we would be losing our minds if we won three road <laughs> games in a row. I mean, we would think we won the lottery. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, especially right now during this time. But I guess at any time, you can go on and you can win three big games like that, Ohio State, and then you go into Michigan and win both of them to start the season off. That's uh, one heck of a start. And we really did jump out to a heck of a start. But a lot of that could have been in the fact that, you know, these other teams really didn't know Keith and I. Mm. I mean, sure, they saw us against Louisville, Notre Dame, and Kentucky, but they really didn't know us. And when, you know, I remember Keith having a, a real, real big game against Ohio State in the beginning of that. You know, I didn't have a, a good game against Michigan at Michigan, but that was one thing about our team. I mean, when I say team, we were 100% every aspect of that name. We were a team. And as Steve said, we had like five walk-offs. Five walk-offs, you know, equivalent, you know, to a home run in baseball. We had five of those in the in the basketball season in that year. And all five of us, all five starters got one. We all hit a shot at wow. the buzzer to, to win one of those games. And that's the biggest, you know, thing about a team, man. All of us chipped in. There was no egos. No one cared. Sure, Steve was our All-American. He was our star. But, man, Steve didn't care if Keith scored 25 and he had 10 as long as we got the game. That's really how it was. Well, and, and this is something I believe Coach ended up saying after the season. But as you referenced this, the quote I read from him was, about your team, this team played as well in the last five minutes of critical games uh, as as good as any team I've ever seen play. What do you attribute that clutch execution to? Why were you guys so good in close games? I have no idea. <laughs> to tell you the truth. I tell you right now, I can watch some of those games right now, and I sit there and I can be like, man, I don't know what my parents or my cousin or any of these guys, I, I don't understand what you guys were going through. Because when you're playing it, you're just out there playing it. You don't feel the butterflies. You don't have any of that. But when you're watching it, man, it feels like you have all the pressure. Mm. And I don't know how we did it, but, man, we just we just did not lose. We just – everything, the ball would just bounce our way sometimes. And, and I guess it was just it was just meant for this to happen because – we there's a lot of games out there we shouldn't have won, you know, going up and down the the Big Ten schedule, and even when we got into the NCAA tournament, there's a lot of games and maybe we shouldn't have won. Play it, you know, that way again, we'd lose it, but we would just find a way to win. Well, I, I I'm sorry, I want to take a quick step back because I forgot to ask you about this. Coach is known for saying the greatest motivation for a player is the bench, and he didn't start you at UNC Wilmington, but then you ended up going off for 17 points and 16 boards. Is that something where, you know, you're getting acclimated to a new coach, a new program, and where you just have to adjust the intensity, the level of your play, all game, every game? And and did coach kind of prove, or did you prove coach's point for him in that, did that sort of change your outlook going forward for the rest of the season? You know, I, I do remember not starting that game. I, I honestly, I just think it's one of coaches' ways of being like, 
getting you re-energized and letting you know you know you're not that good. You're not playing all that great because you were just telling me I had double double against Kentucky, double double against Louisville, and playing all these games, and then we get to UNC Wilmington, and boom, I'm not going to start you. So I think it's just a way of being like getting me focused back and bringing you down a little bit. Mm. Well, you responded with, like Ward talked about, an incredible game, 17 points, 16 rebounds. Going back into the Big Ten season now, one of those buzzer beaters that you talked about is that third game on the road in Ann Arbor against Michigan where Steve Alford hits a shot dribbling down the the length of the court, goes to the lane, throws up a floater, ball goes in. I don't think, I I mean, maybe one or two other times in his time coaching at Indiana did Coach Knight react the way that he reacted when that ball went through. He lost his mind. Do you remember your reaction when that ball went in? Because there is some funny aftermath to that because you guys go celebrating, but the game wasn't over. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, we, we took off. We took off. We we all jumped up and down. I do remember because of video seeing Coach uh, jump up and down and doing that. But yeah, we all darted. And I remember Coach saying, "Keep going, keep going, get in the locker room." Back <laughs> out. He was like, "Get in there," and we all ran back there. But then again, like I said, that goes to that three games on the road. Yeah, and starting that off. And like I said, I didn't look at it at that time as. You know, we got three games on the road. I just think maybe this is just a normal schedule. I didn't know any different. But, yeah, that goes to say you can see culture reaction. That's three games that we just got away with here in the Big Ten against a really good Michigan team who was going to the tournament, a Michigan State team that was going to, to the tournament and Ohio State. And if you can get that out the way and then go home, I, I think then that's when everybody started looking. This team might be okay. Well, it definitely looked like the team was okay. And it also appears, again, this is all just hindsight and looking at statistics, but it does look like something changes for you because that Michigan game was the fifth of five consecutive games where you did not score double figures or rebound in double digits. And then it started, after that Michigan game, a run where, Dean, I'm just going to read some of these numbers. I mean, again, this is your first year at Indiana. You go Wisconsin 10 and 8, Northwestern 16 and 8, Iowa 18 and 5, Minnesota 14 and 9, Illinois 20 and 9, Purdue 14 and 10. I mean, you are just stringing together double figure scoring, right at double figure rebounding. Did you feel uh, any different as the season started going on? We, we talked to a lot of players who tell us that when they get to Indiana, the game is so fast that at a certain point it does slow down for them. Did the game start to slow down for you that quickly? I mean, I, I would want to sit here and tell you yes, <laughs> but I don't I don't really remember. Got I, it. I can just look back and I can look at that schedule and you go down Wisconsin Northwestern. I mean, Wisconsin and Northwestern, they weren't all that great at that time. And then Iowa, they were great. Yeah. And so I could see myself being like, Yeah, I wanna I really, really want to play these guys. Minnesota I took the visit there, so I just wanted to play well against them because I did not go there. And then, obviously, I definitely knew that Purdue was a rival. Yeah. And I've had enough of seeing Todd Mitchell and Everett Stevens and Troy Lewis. I had enough of seeing those guys. <laughs> I just grew to uh, 
who are hatred of not liking them. Yeah. So let's. And let's... I, I, I think I got thrown into that real quick. Uh, that Purdue hatred. I, I got it real fast. <laughs> well, and and it started off well for you when they came into town. Uh, they were great, obviously that year too. Um, you've you got to experience in short order Louisville, Kentucky, and now Purdue coming into Assembly Hall. Was there an appreciable difference with the way the other players felt, Coach Knight felt, the fans felt when Purdue showed up after those two Kentucky schools had passed through? Um, you could definitely, you definitely knew there was a difference. Mm. You definitely could tell there was a different buzz in the air and yeah, and you, you knew it was Purdue week. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I had enough of seeing that. I would see Troy Lewis and Todd Mitchell and Ever Stevens. I saw them a lot on the different little TV things, you know, being in the same state. So I got to see their games and they got to ours. So it was just that whole thing. I, I grew to not liking to not liking them. And I can say that now and laugh because Todd Mitchell and I are the best of friends right now. I'm his I'm the godfather of his daughter. He came with me on my my wedding cruise that I had when I got married. So him and I are really, really close and the best of friends. So I can say that now and jokingly say that I hated them, but I really, really did. Well, I think as godfather to his daughter, you have to make her an Indiana fan. That would be the only true <laughs> that's the only thing that could well, redeem you being best friends with a Purdue guy. That's the only thing. You know what? It's even worse. It's even worse. She ended up going to Kentucky. Oh, oh you boy. you both failed her. My God. <laughs> she went to school at Kentucky. So it's even worse. So trust me, I when Indiana was still playing Kentucky, I would text her, and we would go back and forth. Oh, boy. That is a rough, Just rough. like I do with her dad. You know, when, when we lost to Purdue a couple of weeks ago, yeah. yeah, one of the first text messages I got was from Todd. Oh, yeah. uh, boy. So, yeah. Well. So, that, yeah, it's even worse. She went to Kentucky. Man alive. So that season continues. Again, like you said, you didn't lose much. And in a season where you don't lose much, it is – where I think you get to see some of the genius of Coach Knight. And there's a game midway through the year where you go to Northwestern. You're 10-1 and in conference at this time. Northwestern is 1-10, and they almost beat you. And, and Coach really goes off after that game. And that was a game that you did not have a good game in. Only went for three points, three rebounds. Uh, Two-point win. Daryl Thomas really saves the game that game by going for over 30. But yep. Coach does a press conference after the game where he really lays into the team publicly. Uh, what yep. do you, and, and I want to bring it up because I'm curious what you remember about that game. And then that immediately leads into the next game, which is on the road against Wisconsin, where you get to participate in one of those buzzer beaters. And so just walk us through that like two-game swing. You know what? I, I think because maybe because we played, we played Northwestern and Wisconsin already and we beat them very soundly in Assembly Hall. And, you know, I guess it's just a part of the season where every, you're not going to play well every single night, you know, and you're going to have your little ups and downs as a team. And that was definitely the time that we were having them. Um, they, in the Big Ten, everybody's ready. I mean, we're Indiana. We, you know, that name on the front means a lot to us, but then it brings a lot of fire to the other guys. 
even even to this day. And, you know, those guys got to understand it now. But back then, everybody was ready to go against us. And it wasn't really just us. It was also our coach. You know, people wanted to beat us. You know, no matter where we went, even though we played those guys and they were 1-10, in 10, it was sold out. It was jam-packed. It was sold out. And their crowd was, was into it from, from jump. And you would never think this was a team that was 1-10, in 10, but they were, they were ready to play. And we weren't as ready to play. And thank goodness Daryl, you know, had one of, his great, one of his great games. And being back home in Chicago for him might have, you know, had him a little bit more energetic. And we probably weren't just ready just thinking, okay, yeah, this is Northwestern. They're going to lay down. They're not going to be ready to play. We ain't really got to be ready to play. We, all we got to do is show up. And, you know, they almost embarrassed us. Then you go on the road to Wisconsin where you play a triple overtime game. We think the first in the history of IU. Is that true? Yeah, that's what I read. Wow. They, they didn't really I like, so, yeah. Yeah, they didn't really keep track of them way back in the day, but in recorded history it was the first triple overtime game. It's also the first game that Dean Garrett turns in a 2010 performance with 21 points and 11 rebounds. And what I love about how we win that game is it it we won the game because you got a rebound and points. Uh, walk us through the end of that game and what you remember from your final play. Um, I only remember because I've seen it on video, so <laughs> don't don't think that my memory is that great. <laughs> uh, but I, I I do remember that game, and it's just another one of those games where it's like, man, we should just beat these guys because we've already beaten these guys really really good. But then that's a, just a tribute to the Big Ten and just really how strong it was, and a tribute to everybody wanting to come out and play hard against us because we're Indiana and we were probably ranked, what, two or three in the nation at that time, Mm -hmm. and it was an ESPN game. I do remember that because it was a late ESPN game because we were hanging around the hotel way too long for us. We were ready to, you know, get out there, but we're just sitting there, and it's, you know, the game started at like 8, 9.30, I believe. Wow. So I do remember, I do remember all those things, and it was just another fired-up crowd in their field house, which was, you know, not like the Cole Center like they have now. They were playing in that field house, and it was just a night, a dreary, cold atmosphere for us coming out there, and for them, you know, this is their time to shine. They were, they were cranked up. And we just weren't playing well as a team defensively. Steve really wasn't shooting the ball very well offensively at that time. But uh, I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Off of Joe's, uh, Joe Hillman's missed shot. I was fortunate to be there and, and to get that. And, you know, when you do something like that, everything kind of goes in slow motion. You don't really remember much of it. I, it's like you, your body takes over and you just do what you did. You know, and I just remember everything going in slow motion for me at that time. Yeah. You're way too humble, man. Yeah. You are way too <laughs> humble. If I hit a buzzer beater game winner against a conference rival, you you said like you only know it because you saw it on video. I, I would have that as like my ringtone on my phone. 
if I hit a buzzer beater. That Don, I would Don be, Fisher's call. Yeah, it would just be everywhere. There'd be T-shirts made. There'd be photos up. It's like, but I will say, I say that in jest. Almost everyone that we have talked to from any of these teams, especially for Coach Knight, the humility that all of you guys had individually and as a team is part of the greatness of these teams. That, and how much was that that he recruited players like that, or did he mold you into somebody that was more humble and about the team? It might be a little bit of both. I mean, I think when you when you play for coach, you you hear a lot of of the humility that keeps you grounded. You know, you you're never that good and you're never that bad. You're just somewhere in between. <laughs> so you guys keep rolling. And then it's time to play the only conference team you lost to. You had gone into Iowa and ran into the number one team in the country, the first team to ever put up 100-plus points on Coach Knight. What had you learned from that first loss to them that you were able to use to then take them down when they came to Bloomington? Um, we did learn that we weren't that good. <laughs> uh, we thought they were, <laughs> they were better. Uh, we knew they ran. Uh, they had a heck of a fast break with B.J. Armstrong and Roy Marble. Uh, and we just, we just, we looked at those guys as completely different. They, they were, they handled, they handled us real, real good. And I don't think we played that bad. There's other games that you can be like, man, we just had a bad game. I don't think we played that bad against Iowa that first time, but their press and the way they handled us in their arena, they, they took care of us. And so I, that's one of those games where it's like we felt pretty good going in because we didn't play bad, and we knew it was like, wow, they had to play this good again in this building against us here. I don't know if they can do it, but we we were really, really, really fired up to to, re, to revenge that game right there against them. One little tidbit I found out: all twelve scholarship players on Iowa that year played professionally wow that was a loaded team you guys took down yeah all 12 made it made it in the pros at some level that's amazing oh wow i did not know that so the season is now coming to an end we we go to purdue we lose a game against purdue uh we we go to illinois lose that game also and it sets up a scenario where this conversation about steve and daryl being the seniors as the only potential seniors in Bob Knight's era to not win a Big Ten title is staring you square in the face. It's senior game. You're playing Ohio State, which also has some meaning because it's coach's alma mater. You have to beat Ohio State to have a chance to win a share of the Big Ten tournament or Big Ten championship, and Purdue then later that day has to lose. But what do you remember going into that game with that on the line? I mean, this is as close to a tournament feeling with pressure as I would imagine has happened yet for this team? Um, obviously we knew we had to beat Ohio state. We also knew it was senior night for Steve. So there's a lot of emotion just on the fact that this is his last game playing here. So you really, really did not want to lose this game for him as just being his last game for him, Daryl and Todd. So that, I remember that being a very that was big. That was big on my mind. Uh, you, we, we knew we couldn't do much about the, the outcome of the other game right. that was coming up because we played first 
and I know Michigan and Purdue played afterwards. So there really was much we could do. But we knew it wasn't really about Ohio State. It was just about the fact that it was Steve, Todd, and Darrell's last game, and we're not going to let these guys leave out of here losing that game because that senior speech is not going to be fun at all hmm. if, if they end up losing this game. Uh, the team wins, battles back. We're down against Ohio State, but come back. You fall just under a double-double there with nine points and nine rebounds. You give Steve, Todd, and Daryl their their senior night uh, send-off in the best possible way. And then later that day, Michigan does what they should have done for us because that's what the basketball gods want. And they smoke Purdue. And, <laughs> exactly. and, they, and Indiana wins a share of the Big Ten championship. Do you remember watching that game, the Purdue-Michigan game, with your teammates and what, uh, what that kind of celebration was like? Yeah, we, we stayed afterwards. We were still in Assembly Hall. We were still in Assembly Hall watching it. Then that game started to get kind of out of out of hand. It started to get way out of hand. So we all sooner or later left, and uh, we all went back to our dorm. Uh, myself, Keith, Todd. I mean, myself, Keith, um, Daryl, Rick, Tony Freeman, and Dave Miner. We all left and went back. And and uh, I know we had a meeting, maybe the next day or something like that when uh, they were going to be giving out the uh, where we were going, what seed we were going. So we all got together then. So uh, we sat with Coach to find out where, where we were going to go uh, and start looking at our matchups. Well, it obviously was fortuitous that you just had to go up the street to Indy. But before we get into this magical tournament run, one thing with all the heroics and the great personalities – I'm not sure I, I had ever heard this before, but that all five starters average double figures in points for, for the season. And I'm just, you know, wondering, like, the balance on that team, how important was that for not only winning the Big Ten championship, but for what was about to happen how do you get a team with that much? And obviously you had guys coming in like Joe to contribute great minutes. And, you know, we haven't really got to talk about Todd or, or Steve and even Todd with his bad knees and stuff like that. It was such a great team. And, and having that kind of balance, how big of an advantage is that when somebody's having an off game? Well, it goes right back to the whole point of being a team. And I've, Obviously, I've never been on a team like that before in my life where all guys who came in the game, I think we all had trust in that person. Um, I don't think there's ever a time where anybody looked at that other person and being like, what are you doing? Whoa, what are you, you're about to take that shot? I don't think we any of this. Maybe when Keith took the biggest shot, I think somebody might have looked and thought about it. But we all had that, that confidence in, that, in everybody in taking the shot no matter what the situation was, we all believed that, you know what, we're going to do, that person's going to do the right thing. And that's just how we felt about everybody who came on the floor. You know, that person's here for the team, and they're going to do the right thing. Well, now we're playing in the NCAA tournament, number one seed, first game against Fairfield. If there's any talk of any kind of letdown or – or, you know, lo overlooking the number one seed. Dean Garrett did everything he could to prevent that with 20 points, seven rebounds, two blocks. By the way, in all six games of the NCAA tournament that you played, you never had a game where you were under two blocks, which I just think is just remarkable consistency on the defensive end. 
And that sets up a second round game against Auburn, which is a game that I wanted to, I was excited to talk to Keith about too, because it's the game that I think gets the most overlooked in this tournament run. That when I went back and watched it last week, it is one of the most entertaining games that Indiana has ever played because you come out in that game in Indianapolis with a very friendly crowd behind you and they punch you in the face those first five, ten minutes of the game. They're winning 24 to 10. Mm -hmm. And we talked to Keith about this, and he credited you for this, Dean, and I don't think it's anything you were doing uh, out of the ordinary. It's just who you were. But you were the guy that emotionally just kind of made a stand. If you go back and watch that game, which I have, you see the emotion on your face when they go up 24-10, you make a couple plays, and you, there's a little jaw jacking, there's a little trash talking, your right hand is getting real close to connecting with somebody, even <laughs> in celebration. And the game turns around at 24-10, to 10, where we really see, we know that the team has tremendous skill. Your team had tremendous skill, tremendous talent. You were a tremendous team. But here in this Auburn game, we get to see something else. We see tremendous toughness and tremendous heart. What do you remember about that Auburn game and that moment of being down 24-10? Well, you know, when, when, you, when you get out of the Big Ten season, I think when you play the Big Ten, there's, there's a lot of respect. You know, the fact that they still want to beat you, but everybody respects Steve. You know, I, you know, they all knew that Steve was a great, great player. When we got out of that tournament and then we started playing against um, other teams that we never seen before, the respect started to go away. Mm -hmm. And then it was straight venom and name calling and we're going at you guys in a different level, in a different way. And it started basically really with Fairfield because we played them and I'll never forget coach came to me because the Fairfield coach came, said in the paper that we match up great with Indiana <laughs> because we can handle them at the center position. Oh, and coach being coach, he shows this to me. So now I'm upset that I'm feeling that this guy doesn't think I can play. And so now I'm trying to go at your center. And so that's probably why I had 20, even though we won by 40, coach kept me in the game. Yes. And now you go to Auburn, and now we're going against Auburn, and we're going against a bunch of guys from the South. And the South and the Midwest, well, we, we all know it's a completely different animals and completely different places of living. So here we are playing against these guys, and the name calling is basically going at Steve. And they're calling Steve every name you can think of. And they're going straight at him with a little bit of elbows, a little bit of the pushing. So I know we started taking that to heart a little bit, like, you know, who the heck these guys think they are? You know, you can't do this to, you know, to our guy. But then that, that was just their way of trying to get under our skin. So when that game started, yeah, there was a whole lot of jaw talking. It was coming from them. And they were going in Steve. Mm, so wow. we're now, I'm basically, you know, now I'm talking back to them because you're going at my guy. And so that's where you see all the chattering coming from is because they were coming at us on that angle. And really didn't understand that they were really lighting a fire that they couldn't put out. 
Because once Steve caught on, it, it was lights out for them because he he heard it all too, and he was getting upset about hearing it, and then that's where he got fired up at. Like less than a year before, you'd been at City College of San Francisco, and now you're in the Hoosier Dome playing in the NCAA tournament. Does that ever wash over you, overwhelm you, get you extra jacked? Or are you just so locked in on what's going on in between the painted lines, you you can't really even take in the incredible size and scope of where you now are in your life? Yeah, you don't really pay attention to it. You, I mean, sure, we know we're in the Hoosier Dome and what's about 30-some thousand people in there. But no, you're really focused in in between those lines on what's going on. You kind of zone everybody else out. Mm-hmm. I know they're there, and you kind of you try to play to the crowd, but you're you're zoning that out. But Auburn made it Auburn made it easier for us to zone out because they were going they were coming at us with the name calling and going at our leader. And I mean, I would I couldn't sit there and let them keep doing it. So when you say you saw a lot of jaw talking, that's where that was coming from because they were talking about Steve and then I'm coming back at you by saying something and you guys had to leave, but then our your lead started leaving and then we he got the lead and took over. So, you know, that jaw talking kept coming the whole game. Yes. I, I loved it. It it is I'm say anybody who has not seen this game or uh, saw it way back when and hasn't watched it since. Go to YouTube and search for it. It's on YouTube. It is so entertaining to watch Indiana uh, get punched in the face like that and then come back. And the way you guys came back as just a team uh, was incredible. Yeah, what they they outscored them by thirty four points for the rest of the game. Oh yeah, it was insane. I mean, it was just it seemed like we scored on every possession. Uh, and then that leads yeah, that, to that, that's all from them. Yeah, that's that's great. Now that then sets up a very interesting uh, run of games where they're really the great thing about sports is the storylines that that happen both within the game and outside the game. And here's one that is set up for outside the game. It's a Sweet 16 matchup, the first time ever that Indiana is playing Duke University, and of course you're playing. Coach Knight's old protege and former player at West Point, Mike Shashevsky, as Mike Shashevsky is starting his, you know, dynastic run at Duke in in these years with these teams, and Danny okay. Ferry's the star. What do you remember from that Sweet Sixteen matchup against Duke? And and also, I want to touch back on something you said, where you really said that that was the game that it started to make sense for you that you were playing for the whole state. So, what anything you can share with us about that game? Uh, Duke, like you said, Duke was just getting started to being the national power that they are today. I mean, they were in the final four the year before, you know, so they lost to Louisville. So we definitely knew the power of Duke, but you know, it was a game that we knew that was coaches ex, uh, ex player. So we knew the emotions there and we definitely knew, Hey, we want to do this for coach. I don't think the Duke name really at that time meant a lot. Not as much as you're going to talk about next is the LSU game because we knew the venom that Coach Brown and Coach Knight have with each other. Yeah. So the, co- the, the venom with these guys wasn't there as much. So, so it was a game, yeah, we knew Danny Ferry. Yeah, I knew he was an All-American. But 
it was just one of those games where it's like, you know what, let's just play this one. Let's just try to play well because we knew the venom that was coming up in the next game. Well, and and in this one, while well, you guys had played virtually in your backyard in the Hoosier Dome, you weren't much further away in Cincinnati, which was also Rick Calloway's hometown. In a situation like that, did did you see Rick get a little more vocal or a little more pumped? Absolutely. Rick was uh Rick was definitely ready to play. He was definitely cranked up. You know, we could have been playing against we could have played against a high school team. Rick was ready to get back home and just to show out and do what he had to do. So just the fact that we were back in Cincinnati, he was ecstatic. So that energy level from him brought out the energy level from everybody. But then, like I said, once you knew that you were going against LSU and Dale Brown, uh, the Cincinnati part started to take another backstory because we just knew we didn't want to be the guys who lost this game with a quarter on the side. We knew how bad Coach Knight wanted to win that game. Well, and when you did in amazing fashion, and you turn in an incredible game, 17 points, 15 rebounds, three blocks, and a game where now Ricky Calloway gets his chance to be the hero at the end of the game and uh, yeah. and win that game. But Because uh, you brought up the great Coach Knight-Dale Brown a rivalry a bit, although I, I hate calling it a rivalry because Knight just kicked his ass, so I hate calling it a rivalry. But do you know the great <laughs> quote that Knight, that Coach Knight has about that game, about Dale Brown? Some of, some about the freak defense, am I right? Oh, that one I don't know. I, that it, what do you have on that one? I would love to hear what that one is. I have a different one. I just I just remember they had some defense that they would call the freak defense, and that you. They really never explained what they were doing, but that's what they called it, the freak defense. And so I do remember Coach making some kind of comment about we had to come out with our freak offense or something like that. <laughs> he wasn't really one. He wasn't trying to hold back when it came to that game with Dell Brown. He was really trying to go at him well, with any kind of smart comment he can get out. Well, here's the one that I love more than anything is uh, so – LSU was winning that game. You guys were down by nine with only four minutes left. It, it oh, was yeah. it was not a great oh, scenario. Yeah. And so after the game, a reporter asked Coach about it, and Coach said, and I'm quoting now, it didn't look good. In fact, my assistants had just about given up, and so had I. But then I looked down towards the other bench and saw Dale Brown standing there. I knew then we had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is just, I've never heard that one. <laughs> that is that, classic. That is Coach Knight at his absolute best in managing media and, yes, and you know, he is just he his he doesn't get enough credit. We talk about this a lot with his former players and happy if you have a story to, to kind of tell this, but Coach Knight's sense of humor was incredible. I mean, when he wanted to be funny, he could be really, really funny. And that is a perfect example of 100%. kind of his, his biting sense of humor. Being funny, but he, he was jabbing at the same time. So, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. There's always talk about when Indiana didn't win a couple of titles, it was bad luck. 
But talking with Keith, you know, a little while back, it was like starting to look at some of the good fortune you guys had, not only with health and and Ricky getting health, but that you got to play in Indianapolis and now Cincinnati and even in Cincinnati against LSU. And you alluded to this earlier that now you have Keith's hometown team. Was there something where you there was an appreciable difference in how Keith prepared to play against all his old home state rivals? The LSU game, sure, because Keith being from Baton Rouge and LSU being in Baton Rouge, I knew the connection there for him. I knew that he wanted to beat those guys because that was his that was his, that's a school in his backyard. Right. But just being in New Orleans, I didn't think much of it as all right, Keith, now it's your turn. Roundly, we thought that. Well, now you get to go to the Final Four, a place that Indiana had not been since 1981. And we're in New Orleans, and it is set up for a matchup against the team that might have been the home for Dean Garrett had Jerry Tarkanian really recruited him. And it is a loaded UNLV squad with a center named Armand Gilliam, who is a stud, an absolute beast of a, of a man, and that is going to be your matchup. Uh, what do you remember going into that game? And and again, I mean, you seem to be a guy that is just so focused on what's ahead of you, and you talked about getting butterflies before every game, but was there any difference to you at all for being now in the Final Four, or was it just, I want to beat Armand Gilliam and UNLV? Um, you know what? I didn't think I could stop Armand Gilliam, to tell you the truth. I mean, these guys were him and Freddie Banks. They were scores. Yeah. And so I was sitting there like, man, how how am I going to be able to stop this guy? Because he's a major part of their offense. So it's not like you know they'll give him the ball every so often. They're trying to give him the ball every time come down the floor. And he's pretty much the that was pretty much the first time during that year that I had to go against somebody who was the major part of their offense mm. you know you had guys like ken norman and stuff like that but it wasn't the same they were forcing the ball to armin every single time it had been like to us it had been like me playing against david robinson that year they would have been forcing it to him mm-hmm. so i didn't know if i could really stop armon at the time i was just trying to contain him as much as possible we knew that i knew i had my hands full with him on on my side. Well, you certainly That's how I kind of went into that game. You held your own with, you know, 18 points and 11 boards, but I think the most surprising thing for people watching that game was that you guys decided to run with him. You kept it up tempo. Was that something coach talked to you leading up to that game like, "Hey guys, we're actually going to not try to make them play at our speed. We're going to sort of fight fire with fire or was it just how the game unfolded? No, that's, I think that's just part of coach's brilliance. Uh, he knew what he had out of us and he knew what we were going against. And if you're going to try to slow these guys down at that time, cause I've said it before, UNLV at that time, that was showtime. That was showtime to college basketball. I mean, they were a chip right out of the old block of taking it from the Lakers mm. on how they went up and down the floor. And that's how we looked at these guys. I mean, we were watching videotape and we were all in amazement on the passes that they made and the showboating and the different showmanship that they had. So we were already just in awe 
or looking at, you know, how these guys played. But when coach came out, he was like, we're going, you know, there's, we really never really called plays anyway. Right. But during this game, we really weren't trying to call, call as many plays as we didn't have to. Coach said, you get it, go. And that's just how we looked at it. Get it and go. And I'm not sure what their game plan was. I'm pretty sure their game plan was the same. But once again, once you get into the tournament, the respect level goes out the window for, for everybody. And even though they might have knew who Steve was and what Steve has done, I don't think they respected the whole fact that, you know, Steve was a great shooter and he was an All-American. That was a Big Ten thing that everybody respected. But once we got out of that, I don't think the guys really respected it. They just heard of it. And it's like, ah, yeah, well, we can stop that. And then they, you know, the game's over and they realize, man, that guy's pretty good. All right. Dean, City College, San Francisco the year before. New Orleans Superdome playing for the national championship a year later. In front, that last game, by the way, we should mention, was in front of the biggest crowd in college basketball history. I think it was the biggest crowd for a live event, a live sporting event. I don't think it was just college basketball at that point. I can't, I think it was, I can't speak to that. I don't know that. I think it was. I think it was the largest live sporting event, uh, indoor sporting event uh, crowd ever. Okay. At that point. And if not, who the hell's going to check it? So let's just go with it. So, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so now you're playing Syracuse, another team that is loaded with talent and especially loaded with front court talent. Derek Coleman, Ronnie Cycli, two guys that each played a long NBA career. Derek Coleman, a star. Ronnie Cycli, basically a star in the NBA. And you get to play for the national championship. Just give us a little bit of the feeling going into that game, Dean. Um, going into that game, you know, I I remember coming off a shoot around. We, we might have, I think we already played UNLV, so we were coming off the shoot around the next day. And I remember walking past those guys. And you know, you're around basketball guys all the time. So if you if you're used to seeing them, they don't look the, they don't look that big. But when the first time you see them. You're walking by, and I do remember just looking like, man, these guys are, you know, everybody on this team is big. You know, they all got a lot of height. That's a, one of the first things I remember us talking about when we walked past them. And going into that game, I felt pretty good. I think we all did. I think we all felt pretty good. We all felt pretty confident. Uh, it was just, let's just go. We just wanted to get started, you know. You, you, you're, you're sitting in your hotel room. We were kind of ostracized from everybody else. It wasn't like we were able to just walk around and go down in the lobby and do whatever we wanted to. We were pretty much in our room at the whole time or watching video or doing something. So it was just one of those kind of days where it's like, can we just get this going? Can we just start, please? Hurry this day up. I'm ready to go. Everybody was just anxious. It was that anxious feeling to hurry up and get on the bus. And even when you got on the bus, you said it ain't just feeling because I just want to start because we didn't, we weren't allowed to go out there and shoot around before the game or anything, you know? Mm. We were sitting in the locker room and just pacing back and forth. So I just remember, let's go. Let's just get this going. Let's just start. That was my first feelings when we first got in on that Monday. Well, and you, you had several days to prepare for UNLV, but then you have such a quick turnaround to go against Syracuse. 
How does Coach Knight prepare you in such a short amount of time for opponent you've never played before, loaded with talent, that plays in a style that you're really not used to going up against? You know, because there's really not much you can do. There's really no practice time when it comes to that. As you said, there's not much things you can do on the court. We stayed inside that hotel, and they had like one of those little ballrooms, and we did our walkthroughs. And, you know, you're walking through, and Coach is saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to play this situation. This is how we're going to play this situation. Cycling gets the ball on this post. You know, we're going to play it like this. If he's on this post, you're going to play it like that. And you got to get all this information in your mind and keep that and record it for the next 24, 24 hours because that's how we're going to do it. So it wasn't like, you know, we're going to run up and down the court doing it because we couldn't. It's just that we're going to do this in this ballroom and keep pay attention to what coach is saying and how he wants to get it done. And that's basically how we had to get prepared. And would you write down notes to, to like right after practice or, or how did you kind of go over that? Or was it just short enough and not so much information that you could just kind of keep it up in your head and keep cycling through it? No, we all had notebooks. We all had notebooks and we all had to keep notes. And so, you know, you could be in your room and Joe B. Wright might come over there to the room and be like, Hey, Dino, what are we going to do if Psychedy gets up on the right side and not go get my notebook to go look at it? I had to know that already. Wow. I mean, was that something that was common back then amongst other teams? Do you know if, if teams still do it nowadays? Because it, it seems fairly academic and Coach is such a teacher. I'm not sure if people are still doing that now. If they're not, they should be. Um, that was second nature for us. I mean, we did it from day one. We did it from Montana State all the way to Syracuse. We, we, we kept notes on every single player, every single inbounds, everything that that team did. We had an inclination of how, what they were trying to get done. We had that in our mind already. So, like I said, I don't know what other teams do, but that's definitely how we did it. Yeah, it worked real well. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the championship game. Uh, the game starts. It's uh, a back-and-forth game. It's pretty tight uh, throughout the game, really, until the second half uh, when Syracuse takes a bit of a lead. It, it actually reminded me a little bit of the LSU game where the team starts to take the lead and spread it out, and then we have to make a comeback. And we do yep. come back. Let's just get to the part everybody remembers. Dean, walk us through those last, really the last minute or so, with them missing free throws, us getting the rebound, and then just walk us through whatever you can remember from your perspective on that final shot. Tell us what you remember. Uh, uh, before the shot, I do remember us saying, these guys are going to make free throws. Uh, that's something that we all said to our to ourselves in the huddle. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. That's just how we were getting ourselves ready. Um, and then Derek did not make it. Uh, going down the court, I never thought that the ball was even going to come close to me. I never thought I would that I was going to be taking any kind of shot. Um, I I guess like everybody else that it, we all felt it was going towards Steve. So really all I was really concentrating on is let me see if I can get a good screen for him 
that maybe he can come off on me and and get a good shot off. Uh, I don't think I don't think Keith thought, Daryl thought, Steve thought that Keith was about to take the shot. <laughs> I don't think none of us thought that. Nobody thought that. Even when the clock's going down, I think we were all still thinking Steve's somehow going to get you know get away and going to get a shot off. Um, Keith doing that and taking that shot, that's, that's something that he really didn't do all year. He never really took over any kind of game like that. He had good games, but this was on another level because he took it over. He did the whole second half. I mean, I mean, when he came back in the game from about yeah. you know 12 minutes left in the game, he, I mean, Steve only scored two points in the last 11, 12 minutes of that game. Keith took over yeah. the game. It was incredible to watch. Yeah, so it was something that none of us had ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he was just going. And so, he, yeah, he just took that game over. And so I, even at that time, I knew Keith had it going, but I, didn't, I don't think we knew how many points he had or anything like that. Even at that time, I just know that he was feeling pretty good, but I still never thought he was going to take that shot. Mm. And then he does. And, and then he does. When he did. And when he did, I, I mean, from all I can remember, I do remember seeing him. I do remember coming close to the basket. And then it's just that slow motion again. It was like slow motion watching the ball go. I mean, and I've been in enough basketball games where everything was still kind of normal. But at that, that time, I do remember him taking a shot, and then everything just went slow. And I remember the ball going in. And I just remember looking up, and the clock was just going real slow. <laughs> that's how it was. That's how it was to me, you know. And everybody was just moving in slow motion. That's how when I looked at it, everybody was still moving in slow motion. I didn't really hear any crowd or anything like that. It was just everybody was just going slow. The- that's just kind of how I remember. After that happens, the timeout eventually gets called or rewarded to to Syracuse. And there is a, a video, um, the, the broadcast of the game shows Keith running to the sidelines. Oh, r- before that, I want to say this. The other thing that was incredible, and we talked to, to Keith about this, and this is how well-disciplined mm-hmm. you guys were and how well-coached. That ball goes through the basket, and all five of you run back on defense. There's no celebrating. There's no the game is over. You all five take off to play defense now, which is incredible. And then the timeout's awarded. Keith runs over to the sidelines. You know, there's a little celebration there. Ricky Calloway is hugging him, and you're there, and Keith is screaming, yep. there's one second left. There's one second left. I remember that very well. I'm grabbing Keith. Cause I'm hugging Keith from around his neck yeah. and I'm just kind of still like in shock. Uh, Keith, I'm sure he probably said it too. He was kind of probably in shock about what he just did. Um, I think everybody was just, I don't think, like I said, nobody thought Keith was taking that shot. <laughs> it was not designed. Nobody thought this was going to happen. Uh, you know, I guarantee you, nobody was like, yep. I, was, I wasn't surprised. No, we were all shocked that he pulled up and he took that shot. And so, yeah, basically I ran over to him and I'm grabbing him around his neck like, what the hell did you just do? Like, like I'm, I'm shocked because it just wasn't something that he did 
all year long. He never just took over a game. And if you're watching that game, you're like, look at this guy. This guy was, like, determined to take over and hit that shot. I don't even think Keith could even say he was determined to do it. It was just something that – it was just the rhythm that he was in, and that rhythm just went ahead and took him right on in there to do that. Do you remember what Coach Knight said in the huddle to get you guys prepared for that last second? Um, he was more or less saying we're gonna we're all gonna play back. We're gonna play back. And even me, he's like, get back. I want you back. I want you put you know right near somebody and do not let them get this this ball up. But by that time, they were in, they were deflated. They were they were deflated. I think they were shocked. They were deflated. They were shocked. And I think they were pretty much like, this is over. Here, we're just throwing this up. And that's kind of how the pass was that Derek threw. He's just like, here, let's just get out of here and get this over with. Well, he does. Keith intercepts the pass, and you are national champions. What does it feel like, Dean? Give us just anything you remember from those moments after the game when you realized that that, that long year and your journey to get to Indiana have resulted in a national championship? Honestly, it was it was surreal. And I, I wanted to know what everybody back at school was doing. And I wanted to know <laughs> where these guys, you know, jumping them down like we were, you know. And I ran over there to the side where I could see my mom and my dad, and they were, you know, jumping up and down. And I was just happy to see that they were all happy. And I just wanted to know what everybody back in Bloomington was doing. That's pretty much the first thing that came to my mind. Like, are these guys having a good time? Are they jumping up and down? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The answer is yeah. You had at least an entire state and alumni spread out through the world going bonkers. Yeah, it's it's crazy to, to know that, you know, once again, that you got that much, you got that much support and uh, that much uh, power per se that you get to control everybody's happiness and making them feel good. And to, like I said, to be a part of that and to be around that and to have something to do with it, that's just, that's just a great humbling feeling. And it, it'll always be just a great humbling feeling. And going back, like we were saying, going back to the state of Indiana and just being around and, people saying those kind of things to you. It's just, it's crazy. Cause I, I'm not there all the time. I don't, I don't live it on a daily basis, not even on a monthly or yearly basis. Only when I go back or when I'm at work and there's somebody's from Indiana and they see me, then we'll have that conversation, but it's not, it's not an everyday thing. Wow. Uh, walk us through what it felt like when you got back to Indiana uh, as national champion? Um, I do remember leaving, coming back home and being on the plane. Uh, we couldn't land because uh, there's a lot of people out on the, on the runway at Monroe County Airport. It was jam-packed. And so we had to go around and then so they can clear everybody off. And then by the time we landed, you know, we jumped right onto our bus and uh, – just going, we, we didn't have a parade or anything like that, but when we were going through, the kids that were in elementary school, you know, they, they were all outside already, and they were, you know, shaking the fence and waving at us when we were coming through, and 
people on the side of the street waving at us. And they was like, wow, you know, this is crazy. You know, did you affect all these people's lives and the way that they feel about this? It was just, you know, it's crazy. I've never been a part of anything like that. Well, and then, you know, you get back to Bloomington and you get back to Assembly Hall and they canceled school and Assembly Hall is jam-packed full of everybody, students and everybody waiting for us to come back. And, you know, you walk in there and you see that atmosphere. You know, it, it was bigger than a game. You know, they were all at the top and they were all on the floor and there's a stage and we go up on the stage and it's like, wow, man, this is crazy. Never, never in my wildest dreams that I think that I was coming here to experience anything like this. Well, not only did the party continue in Bloomington for quite some time, but then you got to do something not a lot of people get to do in their lives. You got to go to Washington, D.C. and meet President Ronald Reagan with your team. What is that like for a kid who grew up in San Clemente wanting to play baseball to be a national champion at the White House meeting the president? Uh, going to DC was, uh, was a great experience and especially going to the white house, you know, definitely, especially back in the eighties, you know, I can't imagine trying to get in there now because the level of security then was kind of crazy. So I can only think now it's got to be off the charts, how hard it is to probably get in there. But, you know, I actually saw our, our meeting with the president on YouTube and, you know, when I'm watching it, then I'm looking and I'm like, man, there's George W. Bush. He was a, the vice president. I didn't know any of that stuff. I had no <laughs> idea that he was standing right there. And I'm like, man, you know, I met Reagan and I met George W. Bush. And you're looking at all these people that I know now that I had no idea who they were then. Wow. And that... so it was crazy watching it, you know, now as an adult. Because I'm like, man, that's crazy than it was watching it, you know, being a part of it 30-some years ago. I, I got a bigger feeling out of it now. Well, Dean, you have so much more to talk about, especially since you have your senior year at Indiana where you turn in a first-team All-Big Ten performance. You welcome Jay Edwards, uh, one of the, the just most incredible talents that ever came to Bloomington. You then have an amazing career post-Indiana, uh, both internationally and then returning to the NBA as a rookie at 30 years old and a nice NBA career. And we want to talk to you about all that, but we have taken up so much of your time now. What we would ask is, is there any way we could end this part now and then do a part two with you in the next couple weeks where we get to focus on that stuff? Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I Before we end, Dean, I just want to say this. I, I get from from your own words, we've been able to tell that going back to Indiana a few weeks ago and talking to people then really is like uh, allowing what you did at Indiana to sink in even in a deeper way than it ever has before. And I just want to tell you that I was a 10 year old kid to, to echo what Ward said. I was a 10-year-old kid in St. Louis, Missouri, who wanted nothing more than to play basketball and to play basketball for Indiana University. My first real memory of Indiana University basketball is that year and that tournament run. And your right-handed fist pump uh, that you would do in moments of, of emotion and exclamation 
is something that I adopted playing basketball in St. Louis for <laughs> Jewish Community Center Association all the way through high school, where I played for my high school. I wanted to emulate the emotion that you played with, what you and Keith and Daryl and Ricky and Steve and Steve and Todd and Brian and Coach Knight, what you did for fans of Indiana is more than just that year. It's more than just a generation. It bonded us to a program that has become a lifelong obsession. We get so much happiness from being part of what Ward called this community of Indiana basketball. It's something we pass on to our kids, and it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did without what you did for Indiana University. And for that, I'm just honored to be able to say thank you for doing that for us. Wow. Uh, hey, I appreciate that uh, more than you know. Uh, I, like I said, I never looked at things in the same way that uh, I guess other people look at it, but I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart for what you just said. Thank you. Well, and to piggyback on Eric's comment, it's all your fault that we spend this much time <laughs> as grown men talking about Indiana basketball. But uh, as you can tell, we have a really good time with it. And it's just such a delight to get to know you as a human being, uh, in addition to all the glory and joy you brought us as fans um, back then and still today. So I, I'm, I'm just really happy we get to do this again. Man, my pleasure. I appreciate you guys for thinking about me and uh, allowing me to to share some of these stories and, and to reminisce. I really do appreciate that. One word comes to mind, and I know it's going to be weird to say this, but he is just a genuinely sweet man. Mm-hmm. That That is what I got. Like, he's just... Everything is just on this. It's like right there. There's no BS. There's no like, it's not complicated. It's just he cares. He he focuses on what's in front of him. He is so happy with like sharing it, you know, with us, with his wife, with his kids. It's uh, he's just such a sweet guy. You can't help but just love him. Yeah. And to find out here's a Southern California kid that wasn't really that into basketball and didn't really dream the same dream, you know, even guys like us who had no chance, but we still had that dream. And then he shows up, you know, in his late teens and some guy gets through to him like, you could really do something with this. Coach Dugan. And then he just goes all in and becomes a legendary player within like three years of even deciding to take the game seriously. Totally. Yeah. From Like you said, from you know City College of San Francisco to drafted in the NBA in a two-plus year stretch. Not bad. Not bad at all. And another guy who we talked to that talks about how important it is when he was back at Indiana to feel like, you know, the respect he had for the older guys, Scott May, Isaiah. Yeah, like he's a little starstruck. Yes, and how important it is for the players now to know who they are playing for. You are not, as Dean said, when he got there, he just wanted to play for the guys in the room. Yeah. And then it wasn't until the year went on until Steve explained it to him and Daryl was there to explain it. No, 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 no. It goes well beyond the guys in this locker room. It's all the guys that were in this locker room before us. Mm -hmm. It's all the coaches that were here before us. It's all the fans that have packed this 
House before us, and it's all the people in the state of Indiana that care about Indiana basketball. That is meaningful. And that message is more important than ever because I think in the age of social media and AAU that it's even tougher for guys to buy in just to play for their teammates. Totally. You know, it's so much more of a, a focus on the individual in this world. And and to have guys like that around who's just charismatic and sweet, as you say, but understands it to his core, even though he didn't come no to it to. until he was, you know, 19 years old, that hopefully that vibe and energy and understanding gets picked up even more quickly than it could from coaches or fans who are saying this to some kid coming into play at IU is this guy who's been in your shoes and, and wants what's best for you and, and to get what's best for you. It means you, you can't think about yourself first. And that it seems like a paradox, but it's so true. If you can really give in to being a part of something that's so much bigger than you or even the other guys, you are going to be better off in the long run. Without question. And from a guy who won, who won it all, like won a Big Ten title, won the national title. There aren't many of those guys. There aren't many schools. When you look at the 300-plus schools in Division One college basketball, there aren't many who have you know guys who did that. Not at all. And, and, and I think another selling point that they really need to focus in on is like, look, guys, if you pull this off, in like 35 years, Eric and Ward will want to interview you. <laughs> you know? I mean, slam dunk. Yeah, that is it. That has definitely moved up the uh, the chain of incentives for, for winning. Look, I just love him. I loved how he played, and I did. I mean, my I remember my mom used to make fun of – not make fun of me, but – it was a thing. My, I would when I did anything on the court that was good, draw a charge, which typically was the only thing I did. Yep. The right fist pump, and it was Dean Garrett's fist pump. Really? Oh yeah, I took it from him totally. I played with a ton of emotion because I didn't have any talent. That's all I had. Yeah, exactly. And and I didn't know how to channel it, and it ended up being channeled into this thing that Dean Garrett did. This right-handed fist pump. Now his looked like it could knock out Mike Tyson or Tyson Fury for that matter, to be a little bit more topical. Yeah, very. Uh, or Deontay Wilder, more more uh, That was more accurately. Yeah, just a real bleeding ear hole is what yeah. would have resulted on center <laughs> no court. Kidding. But man, I, I just loved how he played. I love the emotion. We talk about it all the time. We want to see that emotion from our players. This team doesn't have a lot of that, the current team. But, but he, I, I see it in, in Trace and and I, I you don't all the guys don't need to be that I way. Agree. You, you never will. But you need one who not only has that, but also has the game. I think to back it up. So he's out there a lot, you know. And yeah. and Trace being out there, you know, similar size and build to Dean, really important. Oh, I don't know about that. I think they're kind of opposite. They're one. It, Trace is one inch shorter and plays no, but, the same position. But Trace is so narrow in his shoulders and and his base is bigger. Dean's shoulders are like eighteen feet wide. Uh, I mean, he was built like a transformer. Uh, Dean Gareth. Yeah, but they're I bet they're not similar. I bet their wingspan ends up being about the same. Okay, maybe the wingspan is, but they are totally different players. Come on. I, we're talking about a five. Let's argue. Who's like a double-double guy and the emotional leader of the team. All right, fine. I'll give you that. Thank you. Wow. I'll give you Re- that. Really? Sure. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay. Uh, totally different players. Um, 
it, I just love them. I I love that we've now talked to two of the starting five of the of the nineteen eighty seven championship team. I, it is truly unfortunate that we'll never be able to talk to Daryl. I feel like we get to talk to him a little bit by hearing stories from Keith and Dean and talking to us about how much of like the Papa Bear that he was yeah. to help bring those guys along. Because, I mean, again, this was. 40% of the starting lineup of the last national title team did not play Division I college basketball the day before they came to Indiana. Yeah. And you needed strong leadership. And clearly, Steve was the strong, silent leader, do as I do. Yeah. But Daryl clearly was the do as I say and and helped bring those guys along. And without that, we would not have won the national championship. So I get a feel that we get a little bit of Daryl. Um, from these conversations, and obviously we we desperately want to talk to uh, to to Steve Alford, and I would love to talk to Ricky Calloway as well. Yeah, uh, what the listeners don't know is that when I was flying back for the Purdue game, yeah, was that I was sitting there and it was a layover, and I look up and there's all these tall guys walking by me, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Who are these guys? And I notice it's the Nevada basketball team, and I'm like, oh, that. Wait, that means Coach Alfred's here somewhere. So I start stalking the team through the airport. But as I'm following them down, you know, the long stretch of the terminal, it's that security point that you can't get uh. past. So I'm like, was Coach Alfred in the front or is he in the back? I have no idea what I would say and how I would approach him. It would have helped if we'd already interviewed Keith and Dean yeah. and I had some point of reference. Could have just lied. But maybe. He's not listening. But but it was probably best I he had already gone through security and was not confronted by me in the terminal raving like an idiot about a podcast I wanted to be on because now hopefully these guys have had a good enough time that he will feel like this is a, a safe, loving, welcoming place that just wants to slobber all over his many accomplishments. <laughs> that got, that could have gone sideways there. That when you, you said slobbering, your on, mind goes sideways. Yeah, I there. didn't know where that was going. Well, you you do the slobbering up. I top, do drool. So. I do drool. There's a difference, I think. Well, in your slobbering. mind, slobbering. Really? I don't know. Is it, it drool is like uncontrolled? Oh, slobbering is a precise. No, not precise. It's I. No. I don't know. They both sound dirty now. Yeah. They both sound terrible. i got to come up with something else. <laughs> uh, I love Dean Garrett. I love that 87 championship team. Follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for hysterics. No E, no I. But, but the, the sometimes, sometimes why. And we'll be back at it next week. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.